0: Find the truth on Solace Radio.
1: Pastor Mark, I just uh, want to say I really appreciate you letting me come, minister, have a meeting here. There's not a lot of pastors. I get to travel the world, and there's really not a lot of pastors who will address the subjects that we're going to address in a couple of weeks, uh, because the church is in the ether. The church, in many respects, doesn't really even want to know what's going on. They want to, it's like the Matrix. It's a place that's not real. It can be anything that we want, as long as we confess and pray the prayer of Jabez three times a day. And then don't forget to sow your seed faith offering. I want to tell you what, folks. We are at the end of the age. Amen? Say the end of the age. And all of the things that go along with it, we're experiencing many of them right now. We just don't realize it. And I really believe what the Lord wants me to do today is and, and next week is to help you see and read between the lines so we can actually see what is going on in the world, where we're at individually and as a body, the body of Messiah, and then begin to make that turn and like uh the uh, the angel that John said. In 18.4, come out of her, come out of that Babylonian system, uh, my people, so that we don't participate in her sin and receive of her plague. How many of you think that's a good idea? Amen? Hallelujah. Let's pray. I just want to pray and ask God to bless this time. Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your mercy and for your love toward us. And we thank you for your word, your word that became flesh in Yeshua, our Messiah, and dwelt among us. Your word that hung on Calvary's cross shed his blood for us that we might have forgiveness and atonement for sin. Lord, you gave us your Torah. The new covenant model is to write your laws, your Torah on our heart. And today, Lord, I ask that you help us to write your Torah on our hearts in a more real way. Father, let this message be relevant. Help us to see where we are at as a people and where we are at individually. And help us, Lord God, follow your biblical man to come out of her, that unclean thing, in Yeshua's mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. Well, this message is America's Financial Apocalypse, God's Love and Discipline of America. And what I want to do is I want to talk about, this week we're going to talk about the judgments of God. The mercy and the judgment is the way that God deals with nations, and he's been dealing with America that way for some time. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to go through three or four of those, and then we're going to next week. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about the financial judgment that is yet to come. How many of you know we had just a little shaking about three weeks ago? Yeah, it was a pretty good shake, and there was there was quite a bit of money lost. And it's still kind of it's still kind of working its way through the global uh, financial system. Uh, that's nothing compared to what is eventually going to come. And by the end of today, you'll understand that it's that it's going to be much more severe. I'm going to be ministering from two uh, messages primarily. One is mercy and judgment, and the other one is from the Apocalypse series. Uh, next week I'll be doing uh, primarily uh, the third seal, which is the black horse that carries the scales. And scales always speak of the monetary system and the marketplace. How many of you know it was through the use of scales that they bought and sold in ancient times? So when you see that scale, you must understand it's always referring to, it's an ancient reference to the modern-day aspects of our monetary system. And next week, you're really going to uh, be excited about what I've got to say. How many of you have read my book or seen the DVDs on Money and Wealth? Oh, a lot of you have. Okay, all right, praise the Lord. Yahweh is a God of mercy and judgment. Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. How many of you know this is a Torah scripture? And in Torah it says that God is what? Abundant in mercy? How many of you know we've been wrongly taught that in the Old Testament, quote unquote, we've been taught that He was just a law, a God of law and judgment. Please understand, God doesn't change. He is a God of mercy and long suffering and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, everybody say but, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Do you see love and mercy there? Mercy for those who repent and judgment on those who do not repent. God uses mercy and judgment to bless or discipline nations. Jeremiah 18 verse 7, this is a good one, Pastor Mark shared with me. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot it, to pull it down, or to destroy it. That would be judge it, amen? In other words, God's pronounced judgment kind of like he did on Nineveh. But then there's a caveat. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent. In other words, I will have mercy concerning the calamity I planned to bring on it, amen? How many of you know that prophecy, personal prophecy, is always conditional? It's conditional on, based on what you do regarding your response to God's word. And when the people of Nineveh repented, God removed the judgment. Is that right? Now, did Nineveh ultimately get judged? Yes. But why did they get judged? Because there was another generation who did evil and would not repent. Amen? Hallelujah. Verse 9 and verse 10 say the same thing, only backwards. God says, I'm going to bless this nation. But verse ten says, if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I have promised to 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 bless it with. Amen? Yeah. Mercy or judgment is based on obedience or disobedience. God uses mercy and judgment to discipline his people. After all, we are a holy nation. Is that right? Yeah. If God judges nations and we're a holy nation, and Scripture says that judgment begins where? In the house of the Lord. So God uses mercy and judgment to discipline his people. Psalm 135.14 says, For the Lord will judge his people and will have compassion on his servant. He's judging, but he has compassion at the same time. Do you see that? Mercy and judgment. You say, well, that's all Old Testament. Thank you very much. It's Tanakh. How many of you know the same thing is said in the, in the New Testament? Apostolic Scripture. Yeah, Hebrews 12:5 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those who the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges. Everybody say scourges. God scourges us, every son whom he receives. And you must understand the writer of Hebrews is quoting almost directly out of Deuteronomy 8, verse 5. In other words, he's going back Where? to the Torah, and he's quoting, he's saying, here's how God is going to deal with his people. You've got to go back to the Torah to find out. If you're reading the New Testament and you're a New Testament uh, Christian and you're not studying the Torah in light of the apostolic scriptures of the New Testament, I want to tell you, you're probably miss it, missing it in your doctrine. How many of you say amen to that? Yeah. First Corinthians 11 and verse 32 says, this is a good one, but when we are judged, who's we? Paul is talking about the about the body of Messiah. When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. In other words, in his mercy, God uses judgment to discipline his people and call them to righteousness. His goal is to lead us to repent of our sin so that we are not judged with the world during his final judgment, wrath judgment. And in that one... If you find yourself in that one, it's too late. God uses judgments to teach the world about righteousness. Isaiah 26, 9, the last half of that passage of Scripture says, For when the earth experiences thy judgment, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. God's goal is to bring correction that teaches them, teaches us, God's people and the people of the world, the difference between righteous and unrighteous behavior. We're saved by grace through faith and the shed blood of the sacrifice and we receive the imputed righteousness of God. Now it's, it's not about imputed righteousness because we've already received that. Now it's about what kind of righteousness? Behavioral righteousness. And if we walk in an unrighteous manner that contradiction goes against the commandments of God, God will send judgments in order to teach us about righteousness. And that is consistent throughout Scripture from Genesis to Maps, all the way through. God does it the same way because God does not change. Israel is the standard by which God judges from beginning to ending. And I'm moving through this uh, first part a little bit quickly because I'm just laying a little bit of a foundation before I get into actual examples. Because there are some people in the New Testament uh, congregation of God, the New Testament apostles, or, uh, scriptures and the New Testament church that, don't, that believe that God doesn't judge his people. And I want you to know that he does judge his people. And he does judge nations. And all we have to do is look in the news to see that. And Israel is the standard by which God judges from the beginning even to the ending. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6. God is talking about, in verse Corinthians and he's talking about Israel who came out from Egypt under what? The blood of what? The Passover lamb. See, this is such an apropos message for today because we are in the season of the, of the Passover. And I believe God wants to speak to us in a big way here. And Paul says that Israel came out of Egypt and they came out as a saved nation because they were under the blood of the Passover Lamb, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, and they all ate from the same, uh, or, they all ate from the same, um, uh, spiritual food and drank from the same spiritual, the, the, rock. And that rock was Jesus Christ. Is that right? Yeshua HaMashiach. And then he says, now these, now these things happen as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also Israel crave. And we have to understand, that they even though they came out under the blood, guess what? Israel abandoned and went against the commandments of God. And Paul is telling the church, go back and look at Israel, because the judgment that came on them was because they craved evil. And then verse 6, down through verse 10, gives three specific examples of what they did. And then Paul says again, he says, now these things happened to them, talking about Israel, As an example, and they were written for our instruction. Whose instruction? Our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. And if Paul said that in his day, how much more true is that for us today, man? In other words, in in the apostolic scriptures, it says, Go back and look at Israel in the Torah, because I'm going to deal with you just like I dealt with Israel. And I'm writing it down for your benefit so that you won't make the same blunders that they did. How many of you think that's a pretty cool God that will show us exactly what to do and what not to do? Write it down for us. Breathe his spirit on us so we could understand and we could walk in his ways rather than our way. i tell you what, I can serve a God like that. Israel is the standard. God's process for using mercy and judgment. Here's pretty much how it goes. In mercy, God sends the prophets to warn the people before he sends judgment. If they do not repent, God releases the curse of their sin back on them as a judgment. You must understand that's what judgments are. They're the curse of the law that come as a result of breaking the commandments and the laws of God. That's how curses come. How many of you know God can't just send a curse or a judgment or do something bad to to people just because he's having a bad hair day. A curse without a cause cannot come, cannot light. Is that right? In other words, a judgment or something uh, on the order of judgment can't come unless there is a reason for it to come. In mercy, God sends the prophets again to explain the judgment and preach repentance. How many of you know prophets have been coming throughout the world, but especially to America for quite a while, calling America back to the ways of God? Amen? They're all over the place. In mercy, God waits for them to understand the message and turn back. That's the mercy. God steps back and he waits. See, if people are going to hear it, after 9-11, everybody ran to church for 30 days. If they still do not repent, God releases additional judgment. God intensifies the cycle until the people either repent or ultimately are destroyed. And that cycle has been going over and over and over again since the very beginning. But we're coming to the culmination. It's called the book of Revelation, amen, and the battle of Armageddon ultimately in the end. God's mercy and judgment on Israel. I'm going to deal with one specific passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 9 that relates to the United States. Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 8, says, The Lord sent a word against Jacob, and it has fallen on Israel. All the people will know Ephraim, everybody say Ephraim, and the inhabitants of Samaria. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. In mercy, God sent the prophet Isaiah to warn Israel turn from their sin this was a specific warning to Ephraim, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild. The hewn or quarried stones will be uh, excuse me with with hewn or quarried stone, and that just means better stones, bigger stones, stronger stones, stones more costly stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Again, a more expensive and stronger uh, 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 stone. In other words, when judgment came, Israel didn't repent, but they pridefully and arrogantly said, we will rebuild. Verse 11, Therefore the Lord shall set up against, uh, set up the adversaries of Rezin, which is the king of Syria at the time, against him and spur his enemies on, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. In other words, when they failed to repent, God sent Arab nationals to attack them. Sound familiar? There's nothing new under the sun, folk. Everything that has been shall be, and everything that shall be has been. Verse 13 says, For the people do not turn to him who strikes him, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. That word therefore, Lord, is Yahweh of hosts. We must understand that even in the midst of judgment, the people don't turn to God. They continue in their own sin. They say, we will rebuild. Even when God was clearly using judgment to correct Israel, they refused to repent. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord will cut off head and tail from Israel. Palm branch was talking about the highest, and rush, which is the lowest, in one day. The elder and honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. Boy, and I tell you what, I'm doing a series on 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 uh, false prophets of the last days. In fact, I think we've got some uh, newsletters on the back, and those are free. In fact, um, uh, where I'm de- where we're dealing with how to tell a true from a false prophet. And it's not because their prophecies come true. That is not the acid test. You say, well, what is it? Get the newsletter and find out. The head is the senior officials, governors, and judges. And the tail are the prophets who prophesy peace and safety in the face of sin and judgment. And when they prophesy peace, when they say peace, peace, peace and safety, then sudden destruction is going to come. That's the word of the Lord. Verse 16. For the leaders of these people, cause them to err, and those who lead, or excuse me, and, and those who are led by them are destroyed. In other words, the leaders are leading us. The political, the financial, and the religious rulers led the people into destruction in Israel's day. How many of you know it was largely the leaders? Everybody followed their prophets and followed their their, their scribes and their judges and all of all of the leaders who had become perverse. And they were led into destruction. And that was the Assyrian captivity, which is what Isaiah was talking about. Verse 17 says, Therefore the Lord will have no joy with their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows. In other words, judgment's coming. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. The judgment came on everyone because they were all in unrepentant rebellion. Even the young men, the fatherless, and the widows. How many of you know... If all God's judgments are righteous judgment, is that what the scripture says in the book of Revelation? Then when he sends a judgment and he releases a judgment, even when it falls on the young, you must understand it's a righteous judgment. And you say, well, how can that be? How can he judge the, 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 the what about the children? How many of you heard that one? Well, what about the children? Well, we the first passage of scripture that we read said so that God visits it to the iniquity of the fathers onto the children. If you're so worried about the children, repent. It's not God. It's the parents. Wake up. Stop blaming stuff on the devil and stop blaming stuff on God. The problem's us. Amen? Love me or hate me. Accept it or reject it, but you're not going to change it. How many of you still love me? Got about, still about half are are with us. Okay, praise the Lord. See, I like the old saying, got to love me or you won't go to heaven. Verse 17b, for all of this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. In other words, God is still ministering and he's bringing judgment. And at the same time, his hand of mercy is stretched out still. And if you'll repent, I'll deliver you. If you'll repent, I'll deliver you. They're such a hard-hearted people, not just in America. I'm talking about the body of Messiah in many respects. We've got to allow God to soften our hearts and we have to walk in his way. In the midst of the judgment, God still extends his hand of mercy and forgiveness to those who would turn back to him. This is the process, judgment and mercy on Israel. How do we relate that to America? This message was for Jacob, for Israel, but it was specifically to Ephraim. Ephraim represents Gentile believers who were adopted and grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. Does everybody understand that story? Ephraim was considered a Gentile because his mother was a Gentile Egyptian. Is that right? And the picture of Jacob adopting Ephraim and Manasseh is a picture of the Gentiles in Messiah being a, who who believed in Yahweh through His Messiah through His sacrificial system would come in and become part of the Commonwealth of Israel. And so today. Ephraim is a metaphoric symbol of Gentile nations that believe in Yahweh. If you want to apply that today, you can apply that in such a way metaphorically. Now, we're not talking about physical uh, uh, genome. We're talking about metaphorically Ephraim was, a, was Gentile, but he came to believe in Yahweh and he was grafted in and brought in to the commonwealth of Israel. And today, if you want to apply that metaphorically, it's for countries who believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Can you name some countries who that could be applied to? Britain is one. Ireland's another one. Ireland again. We got an Irishman up here. For a while, I thought he was going to wear his kilt today, you know. <laughs> Praise the Lord. How about another one? America and Britain and Ireland and some of the other countries out there had converted to what we would call Christianity, but America was founded on it. And I really believe that today America is probably the best symbol. Judeo-Christian America is probably the best symbol of what we would call Ephraim today. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? Okay, so what we want to do is we want to take now and metaphorically apply Isaiah 9 to America. On September tenth, two thousand one, the Bush administration and Arab leaders finished a comprehensive peace plan that called for the Palestinian state within the promised land of Israel. U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell was scheduled to announce this to the world in a speech to the UN, United Nations on September twenty-fourth. That evening of September tenth, they actually had a little celebration where they all came together and they had a little food and they had a little drink, they patted each other on the back and you know, uh, complimented each other and gave each other congratulations for getting this comprehensive peace plan together. Well, what happened? September 11th, America's transgression of God's covenant was judged the same way that ancient Israel's rebellion was judged. God released Arab nationals to attack America. This is not a racist message. I'm just telling you that everybody on that plane was an Arab. They were Islamic fundamentalists, but they were also Arabs. And we must understand, we've got to deal with issues. In Psalms 83, it talks about the enemies of God, and he lists them by name. The tents of Edom, and the Ishmaelites, and on and on and on. The 9-11 terrorist attack on America became a modern-day fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy against Ephraim. And here we have an overhead of lower Manhattan. You can see the South Tower right there, and you can, you can see the, the, the explosion that takes place. Oh, look at this. The bricks have fallen down, folks. And you say, well, the bricks have fallen down a lot of places. That's a that's a good observation, but you'll see why this is so important. I'm going to take a little side note. September 11 took place during the biblical month of Elul. Does everybody understand the consequences of that? Elul is the month before Tishri, and the Feast of Trumpets is on the first of Tishri. The Feast of Trumpets represents The judgment, the end wrath of God to come. And the month of Elul is, there's like, there's, there's, the the Feast of Trumpets talks about God's final judgment, but the month of Elul is like there's a whole month that goes by and they're called the Trumpets of Elul and they're sounded, in ancient times they were sounded every day for 30 days, and it was a, it was a sounding, wake up, wake up, wake up, because judgment, the days of awe are coming. And that last trump sounds on the day that no man knows. In the Jewish culture, that day that it sounds is called the day that no man knows. That's another teaching. Now, right outside this arena where everything's going on, there's a place called Saint Paul's Chapel. How many of you ever heard of Saint Paul's Chapel? Okay, you're gonna you're gonna learn a lot about it here in the next little bit. The history of Saint Paul's Chapel is it was completed in seventeen sixty six, and it's the oldest public building in Manhattan. George Washington prayed there on inauguration day uh, April thirtieth seventeen eighty nine and Washington attended and most and a lot of his cabinet, who were believers uh, attended uh, service at St. Paul's during the first two years that New York served as the u s capital. We must understand that New York was the first capital of America until washington d c got built. New York served as its capital, therefore New York, specifically St Paul's Chapel. Serves as our political, uh, a place of political and spiritual roots of America. Amen? Does everybody see that? And what happened was, you got a jet coming in, it crashes into the South Tower, the North Tower had already been hit, this is the second jet, and a piece of debris, a big, a huge, a huge beam, flies out and into the backyard of St. Paul's Chapel. Now here's another overhead of it and this is like the picture of a book kind of gives you an idea of what it looked like and that piece of debris flew from the south tower and what it did was it came crashing into the ground and hit and and kind of bounced up and hit a tree and the tree actually saved the chapel from that beam going and crashing in through it and probably killing a bunch of people guess what kind of tree that was it was a sycamore tree Called the miracle of nine eleven. The sycamores are cut down. The bricks have fallen and the sycamores are cut down. Is it starting to make a little more sense now? Starting to come to, to light for you? You haven't seen anything yet. Watch this. America's responded the same way Israel responded. September twentieth, two thousand one. Mr. Bush gave this speech in Congress and to the nation. As a symbol of America's resolve, my administration will work with Congress and these two leaders to show the world that we will rebuild New York City. He might as well sit up there and quoted Isaiah 9-10. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them. He might as well said that. He didn't say that, but some of our other illustrious leaders did. John Kerry said that. And they were using it as a good thing. They were saying, you know the scripture says the sycamores are cut down, the bricks are fallen, the sycamores are cut down, but we will rebuild. We don't understand. The context is you don't say that. You repent. And instead of repenting, they said we defile, he said, we're going to rebuild. Regardless of what God does, in defiance, we're going to rebuild. We're not going to obey God. That's what they were saying. John Edwards said it. That was his running mate. The illustrious Tom Dashall said it. Now, if that isn't a picture of a true leftist, I don't know what is. How many of you still love me? All the Democrats hate me. I know. I'm sorry. I got, what what does Ecclesiastes 10, 2 say? A wise man's heart leads him to the right. Check it out. Get your Bible out. If I'm lying, I'm dying. But a fool's heart leads him to the left. I didn't say it. Yahweh said it. I'm just here to report it. And that doesn't mean that Jesus was a Republican. He wasn't. At least not the Republican Party we know today. Jesus, Yeshua, was a Torah-observant high priest Jew. And you think that the neocons are conservative today? Wait till Yeshua comes. (laughs) On July 4, 2005, our leaders conducted a dedication ceremony at Ground Zero. Here's an overhead picture of Ground Zero. They pledged to build a bigger and better building in its place. The new building is called the Freedom Tower and it's 1776 feet tall for 1776. How about that? They lowered a 20 ton hewn granite quarry stone into ground zero and they're using it now as the new cornerstone. And here's a picture of Mayor Pataki and they're dedicating this cornerstone. A 20 ton Quarried, hewn stone from the quarries in, in northern, uh, north uh, upstate New York. They brought it down and they lowered it in there. Twenty ton. They call it the Freedom Stone, and they said, "We will rebuild." Our leaders at that particular point in time unwittingly released the next major judgment on America that came seven weeks later. Anybody tell me what that is? Hurricane Katrina hit on August 29, 2005. Job 37, verse 9 says, Out of the south comes a storm. Verse 11, Also with moisture he loads the thick cloud, he disperses the cloud of his lightning, and it changes direction, turning around by his guidance, that it may do whatever he commands uh, it on the face of the inhabited earth. Verse 13, Whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. You must understand that God doesn't create these things. Our sin creates them. God is the one who determines the timing and the intensity for when they get released. Does everybody understand the difference? God doesn't create the curse. We create the curse in our sin. God's the one who determines when it comes back. In other words, he's the ultimate governator. Amen? He's the one who governs it. We call him the governator i tell you what, Arnold Schwarzenegger is in for a big surprise because he is not the first one to say, I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> he got that from Yeshua. <laughs> Hurricane Katrina was Tropical Depression 12, and it first formed on August 23, 2005. i got to give you some dates here. Katrina hit New Orleans August 29, about, about seven weeks after they dedicated the new Freedom Stone. August 23rd through the 29th was during the biblical month of Elul. Gosh, does it sound like there's a pattern here? Is God sounding trumpets to tell us to wake up and to repent? Or judgment's coming? Katrina was a judgment warning America to repent. Katrina served as a judgment on pagan carnival, the Southern Decadence Festival. 120 gay and lesbian transvestites filled the streets of New, New Orleans. This was scheduled for August 31st through September 5th. Well, Katrina hit on August 29th. Guess what? It got canceled! Oh, man! Timing's everything. You know the old saying, timing's everything. Is that right? Deuteronomy 22. God is speaking to the homosexual community. Hear the word of the Lord. A woman shall not wear a man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Like it or lump it, that's the word of the Lord. And you can talk all the way you want around that, but it is an abomination in the sight of God, and you want to know what? In the end, His opinion's the only one that counts! And you can argue about it, you can pass legislation, but in the end, God is going to deal with the sin that so easily besets it. And where'd that come from? That came from Torah, right? Another Torah scripture: A man shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Katrina was a warning to the gay and lesbian community to repent. And and and, and please understand, here at the Harvest, and I know Pastor, and I know the I know the elders, and I know the people. We don't hate homosexual people. We love them. We love them enough to get in their chili. And tell them what they're doing is wrong, and if they don't come back to the Lord, guess what? There's going to be a price to pay, and we don't want that because Yeshua died for you. He loved you so much that he died for you so that you wouldn't have to live that way and end up being judged ultimately in the final judgment. How many do you think that's really true love, to tell you the way that it is? Amen. A father who loves his children, discipline. He corrects them and he disciplines them if he really, truly loves his children. Amen. Hallelujah. New Orleans Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras starts about two weeks before Lent. Mardi Gras Day, actually Mardi Gras is French for Fat Tuesday. In other words, for these two weeks, there's just a drunken, dope-filled uh, partying that just is beyond. It's a Sodom, and type, uh, a Sodom and Gomorrah type situation that comes to a crescendo on Fat Tuesday. And then guess what the next day is? It rolls over into Lent, which begins on Ash Wednesday, and everybody repents. In other words, it's tied to the Catholic celebration of Lent. Ooh, guess what? The 2006 Mardi Gras, which is, came after the 2005 Hurricane Katrina, was about four people, and I think that's them right there. How many of you know God was speaking? Okay, these are ungodly ceremonies, ungodly celebrations. Hurricane Katrina served as a as a judgment on voodoo. Here's Uncle Bernie. New Orleans voodoo comes from African voodoo or vodun. Voodoo is laced with Catholic imagery. This is Prince, uh, Priestess Miriam. What's Miriam the Hebrew name for? Mary. Look at, see the window right there? What image is that? Is that, is that Mary? Mother Mary? The Catholics Mary? Voodoo means snake spirit. Voodoo worships a large python called Dan Gui. And I, I'm not sure on that last pronunciation, but it's Dan Gui or Dan Guib. Voodoo practices snake dancing. Doesn't that look like fun? Dan Gwe is also called father of the spirits or father of the Simbi. This snake spirit is the father of the spirits, and these spirits are called Simbi. Who does the snake represent? Thank you very much. Voodoo spirits are known as Simbi or Loas, and they originate as water spirits. And, and this is a little Simbi bottle that you can put water in, these Simbi water spirits, and actually put, you can buy this off the internet for like 40 bucks. What a deal, huh? Probably an old Coke bottle just wrapped in a little, you know. Man, what a craft project, huh? Simbi are empowered by wetlands and bayous. Michael Ortiz Hill Bandu, he's a voodoo leader and author, says this. There is considerable scholarship about Simbis of the southern wetland. Water spirits, both fierce and magical, who inhabit streams, swamps, and ponds. This is a picture of the, of the, of, of a bayou. In fact, this is a picture of the Louisiana bayou which makes a perfect habitation for Simbi or the water spirit. Now, this is a picture of New Orleans from from like Spate. This is a, a, a satellite picture. Simbi, there's a there's a there's a water spirit called Simbi and Dizo, which means Simbi in two waters. The two waters represent the fresh water and the salt water coming together. Right there's New Orleans. And New Orleans is where the fresh water of the Mississippi comes together with the salt water of the Gulf of Mexico. And we must understand that New Orleans serves as an epicenter for voodoo spirits. That's why it's that's why it's so big down there, and it's not so big in Colorado. Well, we got our mountains. Does everybody understand? It's not it's not by chance that voodoo is so big. In fact, voodoo consumes New Orleans. Katrina in English is a derivative of Catherine, which means pure or purify, depending on how you want to use it. Katrina in Greek comes from Hekatrine or Hekateros. In Greek mythology, Hekatrine and Hekateros originates from the name Hecate. Hecate is a pagan goddess associated with witchcraft, tombs, demons, and the underworld. The Encyclopedia Britannica says, quote, Hecate was the goddess presiding over magic spell. What does Deuteronomy 12, what does the Torah say? Deuteronomy 18, verse 10 says, there shall not be found among you anyone, say anyone, Judeo-Christian America, you who were founded on my word, in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, there shall not be found anyone among you who uses divination, who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts spells, or a medium, or a spiritus, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. I didn't say it, Yahweh said it. Amen? We must understand there is a penalty, there is a price to pay for unrepentant rebellion against God and against His word. And the reason things are coming faster and more intense at this particular point in time, because these are like the birth pains. Birth pains, ladies, don't birth pains come more frequently with more intensity? I can't relate, I'm sorry, but I've been told that. I want to tell you what, that's exactly what's happening right now. These are part of the birth pains that come at the end of the age. On moonlit nights, the Encyclopedia Britannica goes on to say, on moonlit nights, Hecate, or Katrina, was seen at crossroads accompanied by ghosts and hellbounds. Katrina was the one who, or Hecate was the one who helped them to cross over from the living over into the netherworld. That's what the goddess's job was. The backdrop for voodoo is usually centered around the crossroads of the cemetery filled with tombstones, skeletons, ghosts, and death. Am I, if I'm lying, I'm dying. Is that right? This is not a coincidence, folks. God is trying to speak to us very clearly about what is going on. In Mexico, it is said, La Catrina signifies death because she comes to lead those who have died to cross over to the netherworld. Thus, whenever someone dies, it is common to hear people say, and I'm just going to take a stab at this, vino por el Catrina, which means, La Catrina came for him. Can we have fun? How many of you are glad I'm not (laughs) religious? Yeah, two of you. Okay, praise the Lord. Thank you so much. Posadas was a famous Mexican drawer from the early 20th century who created a skeletal character to personify La Katrina, And there she is. Got a pretty little hat on and everything. Looks like an Easter hat, doesn't it? <laughs> Most of you know what I'm talking about. Hurricane Katrina hit. <laughs> We're only talking about the end of the world, folks, so lighten up. <laughs> Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans at, at an appointed time. How many of you know God has appointed times? And I want you to understand, if you understand the prophetic realm of things, it, appointed times are not just the Shabbat and just the feast. He has appointed times where he releases judgment as well. Amen? Those of you who have studied, have studied judgment on the temple know that the temple was destroyed on the same day, different years, several times. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Katrina was an appointed time. Hecate in ancient Rome, or Katrina, was they held in ancient Rome. They held an observance to Hecate on the 29th of each month. When did Katrina hit? August 29th. It's not a coincidence, folks. Yahweh judged New Orleans with their own demon gods, just like He judged Egypt with with its demon god. Amen. In other words, God took the demons of Egypt and all the false gods, and he turned those demons against them, and he cursed them with it. I want to tell you what, the same thing took place in, in, in New Orleans. They took God took the demon spirits, the demon gods of voodoo, which were water spirits, and he multiplied them, and he gave them more water than they could handle. I'm telling you, that's what happened. And you say, oh, God wouldn't do that. He loved us. Yeah, he loves you enough to scourge you, to correct you, to correct us as a people and as a nation. You must hear the word of the Lord because it's not going to get better out there. The only place it's going to get better are those among God's people who repent and turn around and come back to the way of God. Amen? It's the only ones that's going to get better for. U.S. policy toward Israel released Hurricane Katrina on America. Now watch this. See, cause everything's coming back to Israel anyway, folks. We gotta hear this message. August 23rd, 2005, the last Jewish settlers were forcibly removed from the Gaza Strip. On August 23rd, the National Hurricane Center reported, quote, a broad low pressure area over the southeastern Bahamas was, has become organized enough to be classified as Tropical Depression 12. August 24th, the next day, Tropical Depression 12, became Tropical Storm Katrina, then Hurricane Katrina. So, the Israelis in Gaza, the last day out was August 23rd. America support you must understand that America was one of the driving forces behind that expulsion of Jews from the Promised Land. And we must understand that when we transgress the laws of God, He's going to come, and He's going to say, "When you start." I believe if you want to know when God's going to do stuff, just watch Israel. It's like Israel's the trigger. It's the thing that pulls the trigger. It's like if you want to, people say, "Well, when do you think the uh, uh the financial crisis is coming?" You know, and I, you, my pat answer is Wednesday. You know, how's that? Watch Israel. <laughs> If 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 you see us forcing Israel to do something, just get ready because God's about ready to pull the trigger in America on something. Just get ready. You must hear me. So on the 24th, this tropical depression, 12 becomes Hurricane Katrina. 12 is the number of the sons of Israel. Oh, man. U.S. policy that uprooted Isra- Israelis from from part of the promised land uprooted Americas from part of their land. You might even say part of their promised land because some Americans think that America is the promised land. It's not. Katrina produced events in the United States that mirrored events in the Gaza. In Israel, Jewish settlers were forced to evacuate their homes in the Gaza Strip. In America, U.S. citizens were forced to evacuate their homes in New Orleans and the Gulf. In Israel, Gaza settlers were forced into temporary shelters throughout Israel. Same thing in America. New Orleans residents were forced into temporary shelters throughout America. Pastor Mark's sister came through here on her way to Alaska. Is that right? Yeah, we had lunch together. And she said, I ain't going back. Is she still in Alaska? She went back. Oh, God. Send her the tape. <laughs> <laughs> now give me your address. I'll send it to her. Meat she has Beat Friends property. Yeah, because you can get it real cheap down there now. All I can say is, if, if New Orleans doesn't repent, look out, because Hurricane Katrina is probably nothing in comparison to what you'll see in the days ahead. In Israel, Gaza settlers took refuge on, on rooftops. In America, New Orleans and Gulf Coast residents took refuge uh, on rooftops. Remember? And it was happening, I mean, largely at the same, I mean, just one right after another. In Israel, Jewish tombs and gravesites had to be removed to other cemeteries in Israel. In America, floodwaters dismantled tombs and loosened gravesites, releasing corpses that had to be reburied somewhere else. Remember that they were talking about corpses were floating around? Yeah. Coincidence? I don't think so. In Israel, Gaza settlers were banned from returning to their homes. In America, New Orleans and Gulf Coast residents were banned from returning to their homes. And some still can't get back in because it's not safe. They haven't gotten it bulldozed yet. In Israel, Gaza, homes and businesses were bulldozed. In America, Gulf Coast homes and businesses were bulldozed. Sound familiar? Because, see, here's the bottom line, folk. I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this just isn't, well, if you bless Israel or curse Israel, then I'll bless or curse you. No. This is talking about in the same measure, and many times the same way that you you curse Israel, I'm going to curse whoever does that same way. We must understand, God's word is alive and it's active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it goes out, and it will accomplish that which God sets it out to do, and it will not return to him void. So we have got to get a handle on God's word and begin walking in his ways, because if we walk in his ways, what, what gets released in our lives? Blessings! But if we don't walk in his ways, what gets released? Curses! Is God the originator of the curse? No! We're the originator. He's the governator. We're the originator, he's the governator, amen? Don't be mad at God, and you can't even be mad at the devil. Devil gets blamed for so many things he's not even involved with. Poor devil. Gosh, that guy. America's failure to repent rekindled an ongoing judgment that is currently plaguing the U.S. Can I go into that? I got five minutes. America's current judgment is illegal immigration. 11 to 12, even more now, million illegal immigrants in America, and most of them are coming from Mexico. Many illegal immigrants from Mexico are claiming that the U.S. stole parts of Southwest America from Mexico. Did you realize? Many of them are actively seeking, even some through the court, to get back portions of California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. U.S. policy that affects Israeli borders also affects U.S. borders. Palestinians protest in Israel, Mexicans protest in America. Look at the color of the flag. Same color, isn't it? Coincidence? Folk, I'm gonna tell you if you believe in coincidence after today, then we need to lay hands on you before you leave. Give you a little Pentecostal rubdown. <laughs> Maybe even a little five fold ministry. No, only kidding. How many of you still love me? Well, praise the Lord. <laughs> Both are claiming that their land was stolen and that they want it back. Coincidence? No. Israel builds border fences. This is one in Janine. America builds border fences. This is one out in California. America builds border walls. America builds border walls. This is one starting down in San Luis, Arizona. Arabs tunnel into Israel. Mexicans tunnel into America. And this tunnel on the right side, is it's eight football fields long. And it was bringing over everything. It was bringing over illegal immigrants. It was bringing over drugs. Probably bringing over terrorists. I have no doubt. Arms. Everything. As you are blessed, as you bless Israel, you'll be blessed. As you curse Israel, you'll be cursed. Islamic Arab terrorists shoot at Israelis across the Arab uh, Israeli border. How many of you know Mexican drug dealers are shooting at American American military? Our border patrol. They're shooting at our border patrol across the Mexican-American border. In fact, there were some drug runners that came over, and a couple of our border guards got to them, and I think they killed them, and the border guards got prosecuted! They're in jail! You must understand, and, and, and ten years ago, we'd have, we'd have been shooting mortars over there at them. But you must understand, people say, well, why doesn't America do something? Why does the Bush administration allow these guys to be prosecuted? It's because the same stupor that was on Israel is on us now. We aren't repenting. We're going to rebuild. I want to tell you what, folks. This is not happenstance. It's a spirit. It's a seducing spirit. Islam, uh, Arab Islamic terrorists enter Israel by infiltrating the Arab, border, Arab Israeli border. And the Arab Islamic terrorists are entering the U.S. by infiltrating the Mexican-American border. You must understand that there are terrorists and they have found them. I ministered this the first time over a year ago in Vancouver. And at that time, we, they hadn't made it known that Arab terrorists were coming and Islamic terrorists were coming across the border. But since that time, it's been made known, it came out in the press, that they did find, and they have they had them for a while, but they made it known publicly that they had apprehended some Islamic terrorists that came over across the Mexican-American border. We must understand that this is going to happen because why? It's ha- whatever's happening in Israel is going to happen over here in some form, fashion, or another. And as they come in, you, you please hear me, is that, is that these guys aren't here on vacation. These guys are here to disrupt and to bring terrorism to our land from within the land. And when that happens, regardless of what happens, the United States, the people in the United States are going to call for some sort of buffer zone, something to be done, and the wall is never going to be built. The fence is not going to be built, okay? not to keep them out. There might be certain portions of it go up, but they'll never they're never going to secure u s Mexico border. They're never going to secure it. So what they're going to do is they're going to build a buffer zone in an ethnic mini state in Southwest America, and you say that'll never happen. I want to tell you. Not only is it going to happen, but it's been on the drawing board for over 10 years. You say, where? I'm so glad you asked. The New World Order globalists plan to create an ethnic mini-state within America. Here is a map called the New North America. There was an article back in 1992, August 30th, 1992. It was published in the Los Angeles Times and the Denver Post. It says this. Even the U.S., it's talking about how nations are going to be divided up. And this was the time when the breakaway republics of Russia were breaking away. Remember that? Back in the early 90s? And and these international uh, globalist geographers came out and said, hey, that's no big deal. The whole world is going to be divided up into these ethnic mini-states. How many of you know, the scripture says in the last days, Jesus said, he said there's going to be war and rumors of war. Nation will rise against nation. The word for nation is ethno. There's going to be ethnic conflict. Is that what we're experiencing right now? Yeah. This is, I mean, we can't be surprised. Yeshua said it was going to happen. Guess what? Whatever Yeshua says, it's probably going to happen. Is that, is that good? Yeah. Okay. Even the U.S. may not be immune to the forces reshaping the globe. Instead of Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, the North America Free Trade Agreement could eventually contain a dozen smaller pieces or more. Even after losing two independent autonomous zones, Pacifica, you can see right up there, and Angelica, you can see right there, the United States may be vulnerable to further splits. Where is one of the biggest problems that we've got right now? Isn't it Southwest America? You must understand that goes from Southern um, uh, California all the way across Arizona into New Mexico and into Texas. You must, the globalists are planning to break up the United States. And there's going to be ethnic mini-states that are created. Just hear it. It's coming. I I ministered this message on this here over 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago, in 1992 when this hit. Some of you may even have been following me that long. You know that that's true. And it's in my book, Money and Wealth in the New Millennium. What does Jeremiah say? I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build it up or to plan it. In other words, I might, I might speak about a nation to bless it. But, if it does evil in my sight, by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless. Where does this come? See the footnote? See Torah? Where's that, where's that founded? See, there's, there's a foundation in the Torah for everything! Deuteronomy 32 verse 7 says this, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your fathers and he will inform you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of men, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. In other words, Judeo-Christian America and every other nation out there, if you come against my people Israel to divide up my promised land, the borders that I had originally set based on the number of the sons of Israel, if you diminish that, I will diminish your borders. And it's happening before our very eyes. And like I said, the church in large part, especially pastors, not this one or this pastoral group. How many of you know it takes a lot of but to have somebody come in here and preach like this? One thing Pastor Mark's got, it's chutzpah. Amen? Aren't you glad? I want to tell you this, folks. Preachers, pastors, those of you in here that are in full-time ministry, you must hear this. You need to preach this message and call the people of God to repent. Because the nation will never repent as long as we're walking in unrepentant rebellion to God. You say, oh, it's just gotten so lawless out there. I don't know what to do. Well, stop preaching that the law has passed away. Oh, the law's passed away. Yeah, you know what happens when the law passes away? You get lawlessness. Hello? Gosh. I mean, you don't even have to be prophetic to know that. You can be pathetic and understand that. Yeah. How many of you still love me?
0: Okay, praise the Lord.
1: (laughs) Uh, Are we having fun? Okay, I need, I need to hurry because I got to bring this to a close. September 11th. Shortly after and in the wake, of Hurricane Katrina. Hurricane Katrina was what? August 29, 2005. September 11 was the fourth, the 2005 was the fourth anniversary of 9-11. New York dedicated the Trinity root. New York had the root, remember the root of that sycamore tree that saved St. Paul's Chapel? They had it bronze. Yeah, this is it. It was the symbol and they gave all the speeches. We will rebuild, yada, yada, yada. Bronze is a medal that represents judge Where did they place it?
2: They did this 13
1: days after Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. In other words, instead of repenting, they said, we will what? Rebuild. The statue was placed outside Trinity Church on the corner of Wall Street and Broadway. There is St. Paul's Chapel. What we're going to do, I'm going to bring this to a close, and I'm going to leave you with this thought, is that if we stand, if we don't, if we don't contact our leader. And tell them, do not support a Palestinian state in the Promised Land. Now, I know that's not politically correct in the world. But how many of you know we're not of this world? Is that right? In the kingdom of God, that's as politically correct as you can get. Okay? Is that we need to tell our leaders, do not allow that because the Arabs do not want peace. They don't even want a state. They just want to destroy Israel. And that has been established. from That's been preached to death, stem to stern. And we need to stand with Israel as the body of Messiah, and we, just, we need to say no, because if we allow them to divide up the promised land, God is going to divide up America. And you can even put a thus says the Lord on the end of it, because it's already happening, folks. Hallelujah. And so next week what we're going to do is we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about the significance of the Trinity root, where it was placed on Wall Street and broad, on Broadway, what that is saying is that's saying that there's a judgment coming to Wall Street. The shaking you saw three weeks ago was just a little forerunner taste of that. When that, when that thing hit, it's going to be such a severe shaking that I don't think anybody in here, in America, or maybe even the world, is going to escape unscathed. And we're going to show you exactly how that's going to come and why. Why that's going to come, how it's going to come, what it's going to affect, and how you can protect yourself, insulate yourself from that from that collapse. It's, it's going to ultimately lead to a financial collapse of not only America's financial system, but the world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just bless you, and Lord, I thank you for the time you gave me, and I thank you for the patience of the people, and Pastor Mark and the elders. And Lord, I just pray that this was this was a fast and furious word. and I pray, Lord, anything that wasn't of you, just toss it out. But everything that was of you, write it up on our hearts. As you're writing your Torah up on our hearts, Lord God, that we might walk in it, that we might receive the blessing and not the cursing in the day of your judgment. We thank you for it. We bless you for it. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, and all God's people said, Amen. You're listening to Solace Radio, Monta Vista, Colorado. If you like the programming you hear on Solace Radio, please become a partner with us and donate any amount you'd like, and we'd sure appreciate it, and it helps us to reach more and more people around the world with this great message of hope. Thank you for listening to Solace Radio. Now back to our program. Turned off by religion and hypocrisy, I hate
0: being preached to, something missing in your life, you haven't been getting the whole truth, the whole Bible, and the Hebraic roots of the scriptures. Get answers and treasures now on Solace Radio.
2: You like that title? <laughs> Let's just bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Elohim Abraham, Elohim Yitzhak, Elohim Yaakov, Elohim Yeshua, Mashiach, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. And God of, our, of Yeshua, our Messiah, we thank you, we bless you, and we love you with all our heart, God. God, we thank you, Lord, that you are awesome in wonders, Lord, that you're awesome in our lives, and that, Lord, you daily, Lord, help us and give us strength, Lord. And Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear today, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts Father, that as we, Lord, navigate through these troubled times uh, in world history, Father, that you would strengthen us and give us wisdom and your anointing to overcome. And we ask you, Pashem Yeshua, Mishikinu, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Um, The title is The Good, the Bad, and the Delivered, and it's from Acts chapter 16. Um, So if you have a tree book and you want to make your way there, you can, or if you have your uh, scriptures on your iPhone, your iPad, you could do that or you could follow along on the screen. just want to say a shout out to Grace who's visiting. It's good to see her. Mazel tov. Amen. Again, give her a quick high. Um You know, our walk with God can be interesting to say the least. Amen. As each of us can no doubt attest, it's not for the faint of heart. I have found that there are seasons that each of us go through in our walk with God. Some seasons we love and feel the nearness of God, and let's face it, some we loathe, and we feel like God is nowhere to be found. Understanding this can make the difference between giving up on God and others or powering through to victory. How many of you know that God's plan for us is to power through to victory? Right? God doesn't want us to be defeated or feel defeated. He wants us to grab hold of his promises and power through to victory. You know, Kohelet chapter 3, a passage we're very familiar with says this, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. You know, when red as a whole, we say, Oh, there's a season for everything. But when you start to narrow some of those down individually, I don't know about you, my reaction is go. Because those seasons, when they're upon us, some are fun and some aren't. And it's the seasons of life that we go through, but more importantly, it's the way we go through them. And here in Acts chapter 16, there is a tremendous picture for us in the journeys of Rav Shaul that. We're going to look at it in a moment. The psalmist wrote, weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Isn't that good news? You ever felt that? You ever felt like you're in a season of weeping? But God says, but joy comes in the morning. And that's the good news. You know, with God, He is always working for our good. And you know what? Like a good father, He doesn't always shield us from the challenges of life. He doesn't always shield us From the bad things. He allows us to move through them and he teaches us and he strengthens us. You see, the psalmist understood that there are seasons of sadness and seasons of joy. In our passage today, we will look at a small sampling from Rav Shaul's life and prayerfully be encouraged to embrace each season life throws our way and to do the right things in each season so that we can be all that God wants us to be. The first season is the good season. We like that one, don't we? The good. You see, and we're going to read from uh, verse 9 in, in Acts chapter 16. There a vision appeared to Sheol at night. A man from Macedonia was standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. It's called the Macedonian call. As soon as he had seen the vision, we lost no time getting ready to leave for Macedonia, for we concluded that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. Sailing from Troas, we made a straight run to Samothrace, and the next day we went to Neapolis, and from there we went on to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city in that part of Macedonia. We spent a few days in this city, then on Shabbat we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we understood a minion met. We sat down and began speaking to the woman who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in fine purple cloth. She was already a God-fearer, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Sheol was saying. After she and the members of her household had been immersed, she gave us this invitation If you consider me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay in my house. And she insisted till we went. Here we have Rav Shaul having a vision from God. And in that vision, think about this, there is a man begging him to come and tell them the good news of the Besorah. I mean, that is awesome. Could you imagine getting a phone call from one of your family members who, who who is maybe far away from the Lord, and they start begging you over the phone, please, please come over and share with me what you know about Yeshua the Messiah. How would you feel? You would feel pretty fantastic. This is a good day in the kingdom of God. This is awesome. Shaul is stoked. He's, and he says immediately they, they wasted no time to ready themselves to go. It's a good season to be in when all's going good. People begging for our help and wanting to hear the things we have to say about the message of Messiah. Like Shaul, this is a time that we need to act upon immediately, and he does. He doesn't waste any time. This is good things happening in our lives, and he immediately seizes the opportunity. As one person said, the opportunity of a lifetime must be seized, in the lifetime of the opportunity, don't wait on it. Begin to walk through those doors. As soon as he's seen the vision, we lost no time getting ready to leave. For we concluded that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. A few things to note about acting upon what God is saying. First, we need to act immediately. Do you know what? Windows of opportunity don't last forever. God gives seasons of opportunity and he opens doors And quite frankly, we need to swiftly move through those doors and take advantage of those opportunities. And for that, we need to be sensitive, as these folks were, to the Spirit of God. Um, But secondly, that there is an agreement that this is indeed God. It says that we concluded, he didn't say he concluded. He said, We concluded that this vision was from God. It was submitted to the leadership. And the leadership, being accountable to them, concluded, Yes, it's God, let's act immediately. And so they acted in accordance with confirmation from leadership. God always does it that way. Matter of fact, is another section in Acts where it says, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, The Ruach Kodesh said, Set apart for me Barnaba and Sheol for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed, again, they, as a leadership team, they laid their hands on them and they sent them out. They didn't just go on their own. They were sent out and it was confirmed. Awesome thing. God's moving. It was concluded. Yes, God is moving. Let's act. So we see that they acted quickly, yet they were in agreement and in unity. This is truly a great season of God when it appears that everything is going just like God has promised. And this passage, it gets better. Look what it says. After Shaul gets over to Philippi in Macedonia and goes down to the riverside looking for a minion, right, which is traditionally ten men so they could have a service, right, a prayer service. Um, because again, traditionally the synagogues were constructed near the riverside so they could have a place to do mikvah. Historians and scholars tell us they don't believe that there was actually a synagogue there, but it was, again, a place where there would be comfortable meeting for prayer. And so here he goes down and he finds a woman, a God-fearer as a part of this minion. And these people are eager to hear what, what, what Shaul says, and he tells them about the Messiah, and they come to faith, and the whole household gets immersed. I mean, friends, this is fruit falling off of the proverbial tree. All he did so far was obey. He just went over. They confirmed it with the leadership they go, and they got one here. They're catching the fruit. Awesome. This is This is like... The way we want it to go, right? Don't you want it to happen like that? Right next high holidays when you sit and have a meal with the family and you tell them about Yeshua and they start saying, I want to believe, I want to believe, I want to believe, I want to believe. And you lead them all to faith right there. Isn't that something? Right at Rosh Hashanah did or right between the apples and the honey. Wouldn't that be sweet, truly? This is real. This happened. This is awesome. This is the good People responding and receiving from the Bessarah, these are times to treasure. Times when things go just like the Bible reads. These are certainly times that should strengthen our faith. And I want to tell you, you need to tell these testimonies often and to everyone you can. These testimonies are going to help you in future days. And don't get, we get duped by the enemy into thinking, Well, that's an old testimony. Ricardo, let me ask you a question to which you don't have to respond. Is it going to ever get old telling the testimony of God saving your life and doing a miracle in your life? I don't think that's ever going to get old for him and it should never get old for us to tell a story of God's miracle working power because it's those stories that encourage us when things get tough. There are seasons that help us to continue on when things get tough and life gets challenging. It's these seasons where everything's going great. This principle could be seen throughout the Tanakh and even in our annual celebration of Pesach, right? We're told to remember what? What are we remembering in Pesach? How God has delivered us from bondage, right? As Messianic Jews, how God has delivered us from bondage and the sin of the world... Through the perfect atonement of Yeshua the Messiah. Wow, how awesome is that? But how quickly we forget of the blessing of even salvation. Friends, this should not be a sour puss on the face of any believer ever when we realize that, you know what, before Messiah, we were bound to an eternity separated from God. But by his grace and mercy, he spared our lives that alone, I don't care what we're going through, that alone should put a smile on our face. Remembering what God has done in the past is important to grasp so that we could have faith in what he will do in the future. Someone wrote, sometimes we as believers need to stop along life's road and look back. You know, for the Holocaust, we say, remember, and we remember for the purpose that it should never happen again. But we can also look back on good times in our life, and as I'm sure Shaul did many times on this occasion, to remember about the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, that God is moving and changing lives. And although it might have been winding and steep, we could see how God directed us by his faithfulness. F.E. Marsh described what the believer can see when he looks back. He can see the deliverance the Lord has wrought. You've been delivered, I've been delivered. He could see the way that God has led. And don't you know, God doesn't always lead us the most direct route to our destination. We could see the blessings he has bestowed along the way. Could you imagine that God sustained the Israelites, our people in the desert, He gave them water from a rock. When's the last time you had a big drink of water from a rock? In the desert. When's the last time you opened your door and found food on the ground that you could eat every day? Ladies, that means no shopping. Baruch Hashem. That means just collecting. God did it every day for 40 years, never failing. Water from a rock? Food on The front yard, remembering those blessings. Also remembering the victories that he's won. God has given us each victories in our life. Those victories are why you're here today. Those victories are what makes you you. The enemy would love you to forget every victory and only concentrate on every defeat. And I'm sure we have defeats as well. But God would like us to remember the victories that he has wrought on our behalf. And it's those things that are going to help us in challenging times. And then the last thing he says, the encouragements that God has given. Friend, I want to say this. I don't know where each of you are at in your personal walk with God, but listen to me, and I want to say it strongly. I beg you, I urge you, I implore you with all that's within me. Have personal daily devotions with God where you can actually come out of the time, whether it's 10 minutes, or ten hours, and say that God spoke to my heart and encouraged me. I see far too many believers walking around discouraged. Friends, I get it. Life is tough. Life is challenging, and in this present climate, I don't see it getting any less challenging. But I know this. For my life personally, when things are tough, the only thing that comforts me is hearing God from his word. Hearing God encourages our hearts. Friend, we need to get that daily. When we face difficulties, we sometimes forget God's past faithfulness. We see only the detours and the dangerous path. But look back and you will also see the joy of victory, the challenge of the climb, and the presence of your traveling companion, Yeshua, who has promised never to leave you and never to forsake you. So that's the good. Isn't that awesome? And listen, if I could have one request granted to me before heaven now, I would say, God, give all my mishpachah here, all my friends, only good seasons. And wouldn't that be awesome? And you would say, Amen, Rabbi. What a mensch. I pray that prayer comes true. (laughs) <laughs> and though I would love that to be true, the reality is there's a few other seasons you and I will travail through. And the truth is, though, the good season prepares us for my second point, which is the bad Let's continue to read. Once when we were going to the place where the minion gathered. So now think about this. Sheol is going back to that wonderful, awesome, beautiful place. That place where fruit from God just fell off the tree into his lap. And people are saying, how can I know this Messiah and tell my family? And let's all get immersed and get happy in God. He's going back to that place. We were met by a slave girl, however, this time who had in her a snake spirit that had had enabled her to predict the future. She earned a lot of money for her owners by telling fortunes. This girl followed behind Shaul and the rest of us and kept screaming, these men are servants of God Ha'elyon. They're telling you how to be saved. She kept this up day after day until Sheol, greatly disturbed Turned and said to the Spirit, in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, I order you to come out of her. And the Spirit did come out at that very moment. So picture this. Shaul is cruising along, all is well, like we just addressed. But what would it be to, to, to appear to be just another day and more of the same favor of God turns out to be Different and not in a good way. Shaul and his team are being followed by now a demon spirit. And they're being harassed and harangued by a demonic entity. The good turned into now the bad. And now here he is in the same place of blessing, in the same place of fruit. He finds himself in a hellish way. And I want to say this to everyone in our hearing. Hell is real demon spirits and forces are behind all the ills of mankind of course in cooperation with our will that God never circumvents our will but demon spirits are behind war demon spirits are behind genocide and anti-semitism and infirmity and disease and every nasty thing you could name and it's real You and I are facing it. And the funny thing is that we see in this picture that demon spirits work through people. They influence real people that do things like this. And what we further see from this passage, if you just look at that passage for a minute, the things that that spirit was saying don't even seem to be necessarily terrible things, do they? These are men from God Ha'el Yon, the Most High. What's wrong with that? Well, it wasn't necessarily what she was saying, but it was the spirit in how she was saying it that Sha'ul knew that there's something funny in Siom. Something's just not all right. And he knew that what was happening here was not of God. And so here he does now addresses this woman. Thank God for the power of God. He rebukes the spirit, casts it out. And are we back to good days now? Right? He took care of the issue. He did the right thing. He did what God said to do. Turn around, address it, rebuke it, cast it out. He did. Did good days follow? No. And my point to us is you might do all the right things. It doesn't guarantee that things turn around immediately. You might do all the right things. Say all the right words. Pray all the right prayers. Believe in the right way. But in Shaul's case... Something still amiss. So Shaul deals with the issue. He takes a stand for God. Let's face it. He has a lot to lose by addressing this thing, doesn't he? He has a lot to lose. This, this woman is being used. She's a source of income for the town, for the economy. He has a lot to lose. He understands, I'm sure, if he rebukes this thing, what's going to happen? But that doesn't dissuade him from doing the right thing, does it? I'm going to do the right thing. This is not of God. It's demonic. I rebuke it, cast it out. Okay. And it's not unlike our current situation as the people of God amidst the ungodly nation, by the way. I'm going to tell you right now, you are going to be persuaded to give a little wink-wink and a nod-nod to things that are ungodly. You are in days ahead. And you, like me, are going to have to make a decision. Do we do the politically correct things or do we take a stand for God? I'm going to tell you right now, taking a stand for God doesn't mean all our woes are going to go away, but it's the right thing to do. One commentator writes two observations, one opposition. Luke writes that the emissaries are on their way to the place of prayer. In the Greek he says the prayer, which refers to the act of praying and not necessarily a meeting place. Wherever the kehila develops Satan tries to obstruct the work of God's servants. For instance, in Samaria, Simon the sorcerer offered Kepha and Yokanan money to obtain the gift of the Holy Spirit, did he? Not. Elymas opposed Rav Shaul and Barnabas by trying to persuade the pro-council Sergius Paulus not to believe in Yeshua. Again, demonic influence. Likewise, in Philippi, Satan uses a demon-possessed girl to thwart the work of the emissaries. And on the place, to the place of prayer, the slave girl who has a spirit of divination meets the emissaries. In the Greek, Luke writes that she has a spirit called Python. It's a spirit of divination. It's a demon spirit. It's a stronghold of hell. Because we know, don't we, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. There was nothing wrong with the girl intrinsically. She's just a human being, a vessel that God redeemed, eventually right through Sheol, cast out the spirit. But there was a spirit behind that thing that is as real as you and I sit and stand here today, was opposing the work of God. The word python referred to the legendary snake that guarded the Delphic Oracle, a sanctuary in central Greece, but was slain by the god of prophecy, Apollo, in Myth you know, those myths sometimes are products of real demonic activity. In later years, the term denoted a spirit of divination that dwelled in a medium. And that's why we don't encourage several things as a Messianic Jewish synagogue. You know, um, we don't encourage that you participate in fortune-telling and mediums and tarot cards and things of the like. And I know I can hear you saying, oh, yeah, absolutely not. But, you know, that also includes Jewish mysticism like Kabbalah and the like, which also has sorcery and witchcraft elements in that as well. Um, That should be taboo for the people of God because Devarim addresses that specifically, that we are not to make um, conversation with the dead or you know, divining spirits or mediums and the like. We are to stay away from those things and we need to do it. This girl was an instrument of demons who used her as a mouthpiece and she was a lucrative source of income for her owners. The second thing he says is acknowledgement. The slave girl follows the emissary shouting loudly and she informs the public the identity of Rav Shaul. And it was probably done obviously by the reaction of Shuul, not with the right motive, but with a motive to kind of warn them and say, don't believe in what they're saying. These are the ones, you know, that have come from across the way and, you know, speaking of the Messiah, Yeshua. But what we learn from this passage is that as fast as God began to move in this city... The demonic assault came in to oppose. Isn't that something? As fast as God moved and as glorious as it was, is as swift as the enemy came in to oppose. Shaul does not hesitate to speak the truth, but rebukes the unclean spirit. He wasn't wishy-washy saying, Gee, you know, what she's saying isn't so bad. Maybe I'll leave it alone. No, he rebukes the unclean spirit swiftly. And I want to tell you, we shouldn't hesitate either. We shouldn't hesitate either. Friends, if they were dealing with demonic spirits 2,000 years ago, what do you think we're facing? Do Do you think it is anything other than demonic that in the past four years, okay, you went from having an occasional show that would reference homosexual activity or relationships to almost every single solitary show on TV? Is that natural and happenstance? I think not. It is spiritual and it is demonic. And you and I need to be ready spiritually to address things that come our way, that come to our homes, that show up on the doorstep of our businesses. You need to be ready to deal with things that are going to happen in your workplace. You need to be ready to do and take the stand like Rav Shaul here, even in the midst of bad things, even understanding bad consequences could be had. I don't know if you follow um, Dr. Brown on the internet at all, but I tell you what, you have to give him props and kudos for standing for righteousness. You got to give him kudos for standing for righteousness. It's an unpopular word today. It is an unpopular word, but it's the word of the Lord. You know, the enemy is always looking to work his way in and cause a disruption to the kingdom of God. So even though Shaul did the right thing, the God thing, it seemed to get worse for him and his companions. Look what it says. But when her owners saw that what had come out was any further prospect of profit for them, they seized Shaul and Sila and dragged them to the market square to face the authorities. Bringing them to the judges, they said, these men are causing a lot of trouble in our city since they are Jews. And now they play the Jew card, right, on these guys. And what they are doing is advocating customs that are against the law for us to accept or practice since we are Romans. The mob joined in the attack against them, and the judges tore their clothes off them and ordered that they be flogged, P.S., which is not a small word, flogged. They were beaten severely. After giving them a severe beating, they threw them in prison, charging the jailer to guard them securely. Upon receiving such an order, he threw them into the inner cell and clamped their feet securely between heavy blocks of wood. So they are beaten and flogged and then thrown into jail and put into stocks, all for doing the right thing, all for doing the God thing, all for opposing evil. Look where they end up. In our walk with God, we will no doubt come under a tense attack and assault inspired by the forces of darkness. That doesn't mean the end for us. It just means that we must continue to do what we know how to do, namely, go after God. At the end of the day, you know, you could ask me, Rabbi, what do you do in these times, in these seasons of life? Only thing I know how to do in the seasons that look like all hell is breaking loose against you is this, go after God. That's the only thing I know how to do. Seek the Lord. Worship him. Pray to him. Right? Go after God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Keep your heart clean before him. That's the only thing I know how to do. I can't tell you what else to do, but I know this, that God is faithful. And if you go after God with all your heart, if you say, God, I am not letting go. I'm going to get a hold of you and hang on for dear life. God will not disappoint you. Because guess what? The good happens to us, and maybe you're going to have a barbecue later or something, enjoy some family, spread a little good news of Yeshua, or maybe you're in the midst of a hellish time in your life. doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing. It means that the enemy always opposes the work of God. So far, we've seen the good and the bad, and now we're going to see the delivered. Amen. Around midnight, Shaul and Silo were praying and singing hymns to God. While the other prisoners listened attentively, suddenly there was a violent earthquake which shook the prison to its foundations. All the doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer awoke and when he saw the doors open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself now. For he assumed that the prisoners had escaped, but Shaul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we're all here, we're still here. Calling for lights, the jailer ran in, began to tremble, and fell down in front of Shaul and Sila. And then leading them outside, he said, Men, what must I do to be saved? They said, Trust in the Lord Yeshua, and you will be saved, you and your household. Whereupon they told him and everyone in his household the message about the Lord. Then, even at that late hour of night, the jailer took them and washed off their wounds, and without delay, he and all his people were immersed. After that, he brought them up to his house and set food in front of them. And he and his entire household celebrating their having come to trust in God. Here the guy that's in charge to keep him locked up is now feeding him food and tending to his wounds. The deliverance of the Lord. The next morning, the judges sent police officers with the order, release those men. The jailer told Shaul, the judges have sent word to release both of you. So come out and go on your way in peace. But Shaul said to the officers, you you flogged us in public. You just want us to go secretly now? Because now he's going to get vindication as well. Not only is he going to get delivered, but he's going to get vindicated as well. You think you could flog me in private and just scoot me off? Because you saw the power of God? No, that's not going to happen like that. Then they came, it says, and apologized to them. Then after escorting them out, requesting them to leave the city and from prison, they went to Lydia's house. And after seeing and encouraging the brothers, they departed. Wow, what a weekend. (laughs) What a time of ministry in Philippi, huh? He had the good, the bad, and now he's delivered. Here's what we could take away from this passage when things turned from bad to worse. The first thing is we find Shaul and Sila worshiping God. And I want to say this. Worship God in your distress. You hear me? Worship God in your distress, in the midst of your distress. Not worship God. I don't mean worship God when things get better, when you see the light at the end of the tunnel. No, worship God in your distress. Friend, we all know what it's like to be having a despairing sickness in the middle of of your spirit. In that moment, worship God. When you feel forsaken and abandoned, like God doesn't hear you, worship God. When you feel like it can't get any worse, and it does, worship God. Worship God in your distress. We find Shaul and Sila worshiping God while in the deepest, darkest prison. We too should be worshipers of God in our darkest hour as well. We will never be able to worship God in the challenging times if we don't do it in the good times. Friends, there's, there's some of us who can't worship God now. How in the world are we going to worship God when we find ourselves in a situation like Shaul? My, my exhortation to us, each of us, is become worshipers of God. Know how to get into God's presence. Know how to feel that sweet, enveloping presence of God. And don't do it just on Shabbat or just on Wednesdays every day. Learn how to do it. The second thing we see is don't be quick to run away from your pain. You hear me? Don't be quick, quick to run away from your pain. Shaul did not run and leave as soon as the door cells flew open and his chains fell off, did he? Matter of fact, that's what the jailer was afraid of. And he, he, he yelled out to the jailer, hey friend, friend, we're still here. We're not going anywhere. Don't you worry. I'm not leaving. Don't be too quick. To run away from your pain. Sheol does not run away. But he stays. And God had a plan in his pain. You hear me? God had a plan in his pain. And it was a plan that goes beyond personal comfort and convenience. It's a plan that goes beyond self-deliverance. God had a plan, a bigger plan. And that was to bring his message to others at the expense This is the part we don't, these are things, friends, let's get real, that we don't like to talk about. After all, we're the American Kehillah. This came at the expense of Shaul's physical comfort. He was beaten half to death. He was discomforted greatly. And who knows if he didn't have lasting effects of that beating that he received many years into the future. But it came at that expense, and Shaul was willing to do it. So don't be quick to run away from your pain. God wanted to reach those outside of the community. You see, God wasn't just content because Jehul had success down in the prayer meeting with the Jewish folks, didn't he? God wasn't content with that. God had a plan for the nations as well. God wanted to reach those outside the community and see the region impacted for his glory. God had a plan even in the midst of the personal pain Shaul was experiencing. I want to tell you, as difficult as it is when you're going through personal pain, you have to understand that God still has a plan. Scripture says it. You know, don't you know, In, in, in there's casualties in war. Why are you encouraged to put on armor if you're not engaging the enemy? You are. And in the engagement with the enemy, friends, you get nicked up. You get hurt. You get bruised. You get weary. You take a few hits, but it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for God to use you for His glory.
0: Talk Radio's Redheaded Stepchild, Solace Radio. We go where no talk radio has gone before. We continue our service, our series, on the book of Exodus, the biblical Moses that Hollywood forgot. Now, by way of review, previously in our series Exodus, the biblical Moses that Hollywood forgot, TM, we saw Moses driven out of Egypt, and he saves uh, the daughters of Jethro of Ruel, Uh, and he is willing to dwell with this individual, with Jethro and his daughters. uh, And And one of the daughters, Zippor, is given to him as a wife, and he has a son uh, named Gershom, because he has been a sojourner, a ger, Gershom, stranger there, uh, in a foreign land. Stranger in a foreign land, sojourner in a foreign land. It came about in the course of these many days that the king of Egypt died, Pharaoh died, 40 years have gone by, the sons of Israel cried because of their bondage. They cried out, and they're crying for help because of their bondage, rose up to God. So the people of Israel cry out finally to God, not just groaning because it's not easy being a slave, but crying out to the Lord to deliver them, and God hears their groanings. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we spent the remainder of our, the last portion of our... Uh, message last week reviewing the basic components of the Abrahamic Covenant, which underscores, underlies, is the foundation for all that comes uh, uh, from here on out, everything that, uh, every action, every reaction, everything that comes from this point is dependent on the promises contained within the Abrahamic Covenant. That we even saw in our Torah portion today uh, how important the Abrahamic covenant is. It was referenced right there in Deuteronomy chapter 1. So let us break new ground. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them four times. In these two verses, we see God reacting to the suffering of his people. That is going to lead to our divine encounter, which we'll see today in chapter 3 of the book of now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, Ruel, his father-in-law. Jethro is his title, Ruel is his name, friend of God. His father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So here we are. Uh, this is where the this is the Nile Delta right here. This is where the uh, the action is, right here. Whoops. This is where the action is, uh, and uh, the cities of Egypt that the Jewish people, the slaves built, are right here. Um, But we are now in the area of Midian. Now, Midian extends from Sinai, this portion, the uh, eastern end of Sinai, all the way into the Arabian Desert here, this whole entire area known as Arabia in biblical times, Uh, and the traditional location, Traditional. I'm not saying that this is for sure where Mount Sinai is, but this is where it is received. This is the received tradition. Uh, and this, if you wanted to visit Mount Sinai today, it's Jebel Musa, the Mountain of Moses. This is where we are, and this is what that mountain looks like uh, from a navigable pass, navigable pass. Um, so that's the Mountain of Moses, the Mountain. Of Sinai. So in the course of Moses' shepherding duties, notice, remember, 40 years has gone by. Moses is now 80 years of age. And he's been a shepherd since we left him. We left him basically uh, with a new wife and a new child. And that's the last we heard of Moses until now. Okay? So uh, he is shepherding. and He leads the sheep to the mountain Horeb. We heard it mentioned today in the Deuteronomy portion, in the Torah portion. That's a term that's used interchangeably with Sinai. The, uh, the mountain itself, Sinai, is really more of a range, right? It's a mountain range, the range of Torah. Uh, and so this, these use, terms are used interchangeably. And this is the same mountain where later in the narrative, God is going to give the Israelites his Torah, Exodus and what we're going to see here is that Moses is going to encounter the visible manifestation of God's presence. That's the Shekhinah glory, glory. The Shekhinah. He's going to see the visible manifestation of God's presence in a flaming thorn bush. Now, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, most in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous, this unique, this unprecedented sight. Why the bush is not burned up, is not consumed. This is the kind of bush. It's got a, it's got a particular Latin name. It's a, it's a bush. It's a thorn bush. It's, uh, uh, indigenous. To the region of Sinai, and uh, today on Mount Sinai this is uh, the official uh, bush. Uh, the claim is that uh, this is a clip, a, a, it grew from a clipping of the uh, original burning bush. Well, may, be that as it may, um, nonetheless, this is the kind of bur- bush that would have been burning. So now these are little bushes, they grow throughout the Sinai wilderness. You know, because of the intense heat and, uh, and dryness, uh, the heat that we're experiencing right now, my friends, this is not a dry heat, this is a very wet heat. they are talking about dry, dry heat, dry, dry dryeno. And because of the dryness of the desert uh, air and the deficiency of rain, these little bushes can sporadically and spontaneously combust, and, and they burn up. But what Moses witnessed was truly unique because the flame keeps burning. it doesn't consume the bush. it's, it's the bush, it 's the nature equivalent of the candles on the birthday cake that you can blow, but they won 't blow out. The fire is still burns. The strange sight arrests Moses' attention. Now he's been leading sheep around this area for forty years. he's never seen anything like this, and he moved closer to investing now. What I want to uh, share with you is that as Moses moved closer to the bush and he saw it continuing to burn, it was an extremely unique situation because not only not only did it burn continuously like candles on the cake that simply won't blow, but that was unique enough. But this gets exceedingly unique because this bush, which burns and does not extinguish itself, also speaks. This is about as unique as we get. Um, now, the use of the term, let's get to passage. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush. Wait a second. How, how did God get in that bush? Wait a minute. It gets back. To, oh, it says in verse 2. So why you have to read so carefully? The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. Okay, I got it now. Based on verse 2, I know that what's happening is that there's an angel who's causing the bush to burn, um and it's an angel of the Lord. But then I go to the verse 4 here and it says that God call- so who's there an angel of the Lord or the Lord? The angel of the Lord is the Lord. By the way, this is why see moment, when the bush identifies, when the God identifies himself from the bush as I am. And when Yeshua says, before Abraham was, John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. It's an indication that it is the second person of the Trinity who is speaking to Moses from this bush. When we see the angel of the Lord in the Hebrew Bible, it generally is a manifestation of, a physical manifestation of the Lord. My take is that this is the second person of the Godhead who is speaking. So God caught, now that will take later revelation, obviously, that takes New Testament revelation, but the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Hebrew Bible revealed. The Lord saw that he turned aside to look. God called him from the midst of bush. said, Moses, Moses, here I am. There's no ambiguity that he's talking to an angel, because it simply says God is speaking. That's the end of the discussion. And he said, here I am. And Moses is going to call the individual with whom he's having a conversation. He's going to call him both God and the Lord. See right there in verse 4? The Lord saw God call. When the Lord recognized that he had aroused Moses' curiosity, he calls to him. You know, there's a pattern in Scripture that's very, very important to recognize. And it's the repetition of a name. And the repetition of a name, like we see here, Moses, Moses, indicates an emphatic call. And it's an emphatic call for a specific commission. When someone is going to be tasked with a specific call on their lives, a specific duty, a specific ministry, a specific job, the pattern is generally this. God calls out the name, not once, but twice. Like this, Moses, Moses. Elsewhere, Avraham, Avraham, again with Yaakov, Yaakov, with Samuel, Shmuel, Shmuel, and in the New Testament, with the Apostle Paul, Shaul, Shaul. And Moses also shares now in the response of his forefathers, Abraham and Jacob, and with one to come, with the Israelite to come, Samuel. He responds exactly the same way, which is the way that one's supposed to respond when you receive a divine call for a specific commission. And that is to say, Here I am. And then he said, God, Lord, do not come near here. Because why? Because you could get burnt? No, that's not the reason. Do not come near. Keep a distance. And in fact, even from the distance, remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you're standing is... Holy ground. So God had personally summoned Moses into his presence, right? So so God had called Moses to get close, but not too close. And in fact, he instructs Moses in the appropriate manner in which to approach his presence. In the biblical world, the removal of footwear was a sign of humility. The removal of footwear was a sign of respect. And Moses was reminded of God's awesome Holiness. We sang today about God's holiness. And Moses was also reminded that because of God's present manifestation in this particular locality right there on the mountain of Sinai, the ground on which he stood was holy ground. There's nothing inherently holy about a geographic area, but when God is manifest, when God is present, it is God's presence that creates a geographic atmosphere surrounding God's, of holy. God continues speaking, verse six, and he said also, I am the God of your father. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Yaakov. Moses hid his face for well, he was afraid. Look at God. Oh. was the burning bush, the manifestation, a physical manifestation, a physical, invisible manifestation, the glory of God? Of course it was. Was it God himself? Of course it was. Was God someone he could see? Yes. That's why Moses hid his face. He's not looking at someone who's invisible. He looked at someone, something that was very, very someone who was very, very visible, who was spectacularly. And he was afraid to look. How bright was that bush that burned without being consumed? My assumption is fairly bright. Because if it's somewhere up on that range and Moses is down on the plain with on the plain, on the plain, and where's that soggy plain? Um, At Sinai, of course. Um, Moses is down there with his sheep. How is he going to notice something up there? It's going to be pretty bright. And Moses, even keeping somewhat of a distance, not touching, coming totally near to the bush, still going to be so bright. Moses is going to turn away, afraid. To look at God. So there's no question that God is here because God is now revealing Himself very, very clearly as the God of Israel's fathers, of of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's, don't think of that formula as a preamble um, before God introduces the topic at hand. That is the topic at hand. The mention of the patriarchs, the Jewish patriarchs, would have served as an electrifying reminder that God had not forgotten the ancient promises he had made. Where did he make them? In the Abrahamic covenant. God's actions are only decipherable and understandable in light of what has gone before laid down in the Abrahamic covenant which takes up so much literary real estate of Genesis and is referenced over and over again, even in this instance in a a sense of a shorthand. By simply referencing God Himself saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God who made promises to the Israelite forefathers. And the Lord is going to reference all three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, throughout His dialogue with Moses and throughout His instruction with them. It's not that God stutters, or it's not that God repeats Himself because He forgets. He's repeating for emphasis. It's not only important for Moses to get this, it's important for the reader to get this. This reminder of God's splendor, who God is, arouses fear in Moses. Awe, fear that to behold this awesome God might result in his death. See, Moses is 80 years old as it is. You know, I mean, I don't know if he, you know, if this was dialogue left out of the transaction, but, you know, well, do you want to give me a heart attack? I'm 80 years of age. Easy, uh, with the revelation. Um, but nonetheless, Moses is fearful. Our God in Exodus is an awesome God. And he's a fearsome God. He's a God with power. A wondrous God who's awesome to behold. Well, we now move into another uh, development in the narrative where the divine encounter becomes a matter of divine compassion. God's divine compassion. That's why it's divine compassion, not Moses' compassion. It's divine compassion. And that divine compassion will generate a divine commission for Moses, which we got a heads up with, with the Moses, Moses, with the repetition of the name. But here it is laid out. The Lord said, Now we're going to get down to the nitty gritty. Now we get to business. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmaster, for I am aware. Their suffering. How many ways can God say, I'm paying attention? How many ways can God say in one statement that I love my people, I care about my people, and I am about to get involved? I have seen, not just seen, I've surely seen the affliction, and I have heard, I've given heed to their cry, and I am aware of their suffering. Don't miss in verse 7 a pregnant phrase, and that phrase, my people. My people, this phrase is commonly used throughout the Exodus narrative to highlight God's identification of the Hebrews, of the Israelites, as his own personal possession. Whose are the Israelites? They are God. They are my people. He says that in exodus of no other people. What's going to happen, Lord? Verse 8. So, and that's a very heavy so. I have come down. I am getting personally involved. I have watched. I have listened. I have heard. I have observed. I have remembered from a distance long enough. Now I have come down to deliver them. Whom? My people, the Israelites. To deliver them from the power of the Egyptian, to bring them up from that land to a good, spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. So, God is heading up, if you will, a rescue operation. He is about to rescue his people. He envisions this rescue operation and he is going to be directly involved. He's not just passing it off to uh, an underling, a trusted uh, underling. No, he's going to directly be involved in that rescue operation that he is envisioning here. He will not only free the Israelites from their slavery, but he will bring them out of Egypt and into their inheritance, the land of promise, land flowing with milk and honey. That's the traditional descriptive shorthand for the promised land. Milk and honey, just a poetic way of saying conditions of agricultural abundance. Now, it's not going to be easy because the people are not in that land right now. They're in another land, so there's several components here. People are in another land, and they're not free to go and come and go as they want. They're enslaved. And that land, flowing with milk and honey, the land of promise, Where is it promised in the Abrahamic covenant? It is currently occupied by seven different nations. But remember Genesis 15, part of the Abrahamic covenant. The sins of these people from the time of Abraham now to the time of Moses, 400 or so years, four centuries or so, uh, the sins have now multiplied sufficiently that God can be considered and would be considered just in punishing these squatters in the land, and bringing the Jewish people into the land to replace them. But they will not leave of their own accord. They will need to be conquered, vanquished, and removed. Now, behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. God, once again, reiterates his identity. As the one who sees his people, the one who hears his people. I have seen, the cry has come, I see, I hear. <clears throat> I am the one who feels compassion for my people. So God hears, he sees, he feels, and what he feels is compassion. Thank, thank God that he is powerful enough not just to wring his metaphorical hands, but to actually get those hands involved in this rescue operation. Therefore, come now, this is where Moses fits in, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Well, if God is the one who hears, if God is the one who sees, if God is the one who feels, if God is the one who wants to get involved, and what does that have to do with Moses? God works through individuals. Right? God could, with the snap of his fingers, accomplish anything he wants to, with a with a mere word, fragment of a word. But God chooses to work through individual, flawed individuals. There's no individual who's ever lived without flaw. One, one special case. But Moses, like you, like me, is a flawed human. human but he's going to be the one whom God is going to work through. Moses is to return to Egypt to deliver the Hebrews. How would it feel, I wonder, when it's revealed straight from the voice of God, from a burning bush, that you are to be the instrument, the chosen instrument of God's redemption of God's special people. I dare say that would be absolutely overwhelming to anyone even someone with the experience, the life experience, the education, the upbringing, uh, and, and, and frankly, the age of Moses. Now, notice there's two components to this commission for Moses. This is what's called literary foreshadowing, so that there's no surprises when you get to the end of the Torah and you realize that Moses was never promised to be able to go into the promised land. It was never part of God's program for Moses to enter the promised land. What does he give him? Come, I will send you to Pharaoh. Commission part one. Commission part two. You will bring my people out of Egypt. And into the land of promise, right? Into the land flowing with milk and honey. No. no. Literary foreshadowing. God doesn't make promises and then take them back. Moses' commission stops short at the border of the land that flows with milk and honey. And now, we are going to see the first of four objections, four objections that Moses is going to raise to God. He'll raise five in all, but now is just the first one, the objections that God will uh, hear from the mouth of Moses. And each objection of the first four will produce corresponding Divine reassurance. Watch how this works, right? But Moses said to God, "Wait a minute, just that should floor you as a reader, having read chapter one, verses one through ten. A divine encounter. God speaks directly. Burning bush. A uh, uh, holy a whole thing. And Moses speaks back to God. Moses not only speaks back to God, he objects to his role in God's plan. That's what I call chutzpah. Moses said to, but that should just absolutely arrest your attention, but Moses said to God, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Who are you? You're Charlton Heston. For for a newer generation, you're Batman. Who are you? Uh, For Chuck Heston, this shouldn't be too big of a problem, right? But Moses, see, Moses doesn't see himself as Charlton Heston. He doesn't see himself as Ben-Hur. He only sees himself as Moses, the fugitive. Moses, the rejected former, would-be deliverer. He's all too aware that with 40 years having gone by, he's not the same man he was 40 years ago. He's no longer an Egyptian prince. He's now he's an obscure shepherd. He no longer possessed that strong former sense of divine identity that we see him having in the previous. And his first of four objections is that of personal inability to accomplish a task of this magnitude. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should deliver the son of Israel? So objection number one, who am I to fulfill this commission? Divine or otherwise, who am I to fulfill this commission? See how God responds. And God responds, he said, Certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So if we look at God's response, we see first of all, there's an assurance of God's abiding personal presence. And if you're assured, assured of God's personal abiding presence, that should. Theoretically, that should empower Moses' feeling of sufficiency. So whether you feel it or not, you know that God is with you, therefore you are sufficient to the task. Now, in the Torah, worshiping God um, at the mountain where this encounter is happening uh, is an important point. But if I were Moses, I don't know if I were were Moses, who were me? I'd ask, that's going to be the sign when I finally arrive at Sinai, 150 miles down the road, months later, weeks later, how long it's going to be. Only then will I receive confirmation that you're really you're going to be with me. It, it, it's nice to know after the fact to have some confirmation, but it's still an objection that stands, right? If the people of Israel are delivered after out of Egypt to the mountain of Sinai, and that's the confirmation when they worship God. See, I told you I was with you all along. Well, that doesn't do anything for Moses while he's at Sinai. But nonetheless, we look at the objection. Who am I to fulfill this commission? This is the response. The objection number one. The response number one. It doesn't matter who you. Are, Moses, it doesn't matter who you are. What matters is who I am and that I will be with you. And if I will be with you, that will be it. It's all you need. But then Moses said to God, objection number two, coming. Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So objection number two, Moses is reasoning that, all right, although we're at Mount Sinai, after the fact is going to prove confirmation after that fact. Until that point, what's going to motivate the Hebrews to trust that Moses can actually deliver them? Because Moses, remember, is not only facing the obstacle of going to Pharaoh and delivering this really big ass. But he also has to go back to a people, his people, the Israelites, who you remember rejected as a deliverer. So not only may Pharaoh not respond, but my people, my own people, your people, might not respond. How would they know, how would they trust that Moses would actually deliver them? He he himself, Moses, might be keenly aware of God's personal abiding presence. But how would the Israelites, how would God's people Be certain of Moses' divine commission. So here's the objection number two. What's your name? By what name shall I identify you? What name shall you be called? And God responds to Moses with a revelation of first, the essence, and second, the substance behind his personal name. God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am, has sent me to you. God, furthermore, said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, here's the formula again, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who gave the Abrahamic covenant, in other words, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That God, that one, has sent me to you, and my name is I am. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name, to all generations. The personal name of the Lord is what we call the Tetragrammaton. It's in English, Y-H-V-H. And we don't, pronou- we don't even actually know for sure what the correct pronunciation is, but we use substitutions like the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, so that we don't pronounce the name of the Lord incorrectly, uh, uh, or we don't pronounce it correctly, rather. Uh, and thereby take his name in vain. That's why we can sing a song like we sang this morning, He is Jehovah, because I am absolutely convinced that Jehovah is not the correct pronunciation of the tetragrammaton of the ineffable name of God. Right? The actual pronunciation was only pronounced um, once a year at, uh, in the temple at Yom Kippur by the high priest, and uh, so we have an uncertainty, and the uncertainty has to do with the lack of vowels. Remember Hebrew? Those of you in Hebrew class, you know that Hebrew doesn't have vowels, in it it just has consonants. So if you don't have the vowels presented in the scripture, then you could be substituting any number of, uh, of vowels and any number of combinations to get the correct pronunciation. So we simply avoid Uh, uh, saying what we think the pronunciation is. But ayah, asher, ayah, I am what I am. It's the Hebrew to be, right? Not to
1: be or not
0: to be, but to be. Like I am, I, and it's no tenses there. It could be any tense. I was who I was. I am who I am. I will be whom I will be comes from the verb to be. And what that means is that the Lord is the timeless one, the ultimate cause, the ever-present one. And so the theological term, this word, I am, is the designation that Jesus, that Yeshua, uses in John chapter 8 to designate his deity. To designate, to remind them, does that sound like familiar terminology to you? It should. Exodus chapter 3, burning bush. I'm using the terminology to demonstrate to you that I am the, bir- the guy speaking from the burning bush, that God, that's me. I was there. And that's why the Jewish authorities, when Jesus makes this claim in chapter 8, pick up stones to stone him because they believe it's blasphemy. You can see this illusion back in the covenantal revelation when revelation refers to Yeshua as the one who was, and the one who is, and the one who is to come, the one who will come. Now, this is not the first time the Hebrews learn the actual name of God. This name is placed in the mouth of speakers uh, thirty times, more maybe, in the book of Genesis. Israel is not until Exodus three, Israel's is not worshiping some nameless deity, known only by a description like El or, or El Shaddai and alike. In fact, it could be argued That the name I am, the name Jehovah, incorrect pronunciation, is not a new name. Otherwise, how would that serve as a sign to the Israelites? They knew this name. But Moses wanted to remind his people that this is the name. This is the covenant name. This is the Abrahamic covenant name. This is the name by which God always wished to be known, always wished to be worshipped. The name that expresses his character as the God who both remembers his covenant and keeps his promises. So go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, God Isaac and Jacob, one more time, has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Once again, revealing the concern of God for his people. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and to the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Are you seeing some repetition here for emphasis? They will pay heed to what you say. And you, with the elders of Israel, Israel's going to buy what you're selling, Moses, not to worry. They're going to come with you to the king of Egypt. And you'll say to them, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness. Then we'll be sacrificed to the Lord. Our God. So, but I know, God says, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I'll stretch out my hand. I will strike Egypt with all the miracles that I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. So objection number two, by what name shall you be called? And that was a very long answer that God gave to get to this response. Call me by a name that reflects one, my divine essence, and two, my redemptive substance. Jewish people and messianics, uh, people who participate in the world of messianics, they turn themselves upside down and inside out, worrying about what kind of terminology to use. Ooh, he said Jesus instead of Yeshua. Oh, he said this name for God instead of Hashem or instead of some other name, etc., etc. What is important according to God about how you refer to Him is that when you speak of Him, you speak about who He is. That He is the eternal One, the One who was, who is, and who is to come. You take the verb to be and you say, How do you apply that to God? You can't because He's timeless. There's no boundaries. His divine essence. He was, he is, and he's Einstein's theory of relativity and then some, right? Einstein only touches on a way for us to be able to comprehend how God is God is outside of time. But not only is his divine essence eternal, who he is, his substance, what he's about is redemption. What he's about is taking care of his people. Of when his people are suffering, when his people cry out to them, he hears them, he sees their suffering, he feels compassion, but he's not an impotent, powerless God. He is a powerful God whose, whose heart is set on redeeming his people. If it means getting involved personally in liberating a people who are enslaved, or even ultimately, ultimately, if it means Sending the Son to die so that all could be redeemed. Well, we've only hit two objections and two responses. There's two more. Can you believe? I mean, after hearing just two responses, I think I'd be done and say, okay. But I don't know. I'm not in the foots. I'm not in the sandals. Well, Moses is not in the sandals either because it's holy ground. But I'm not standing where Moses was standing or cowering with Moses, maybe I would respond the same way. Maybe you would too. I cannot believe that the passage doesn't end here, with Moses saying, yes sir, and going. But if you can believe it, there's not just two more objections, there is a third objection. Two more objections that will receive kind and loving, reassuring responses. But then, fifth objection And that will be an objection too far. What are these objections? What is that objection too far? I'm afraid I'm going to have to leave you in suspense. We'll pick up the narrative next week. discuss our series, The Biblical Moses That Hollywood Forgot. Now, previously, last week, this time, instead of a verbal summary, I thought I would show you a video. Sure. So, last week, and that's about right, I I watched all of the different films to see which one would give me the best summary of what we covered last time. And it's very interesting when you look at what Hollywood has done. Remember the the subtitle of this is the biblical Moses that Hollywood forgot. Not one of the portrayals um, presents all five of the objections that Moses uh, uh, presents before the Lord. We only covered two last week, but it's very, very interesting, I think, you know, with the Charlton Heston version with with, uh, the Ten Commandments. Uh, you spend more time watching Moses climb up Mount Sinai than you do about commensurate time with his journey up than the actual time that he spends with the Lord at the burning bush and I think he gets out maybe two uh, uh, two objections it 's that one 's really concerned with showing him uh, as an athlete and as a man of action and uh, it's a wonderful presentation um, the Prince of Egypt, the cartoon version, um, was, was interesting, but it conflated, too. It also conflated the objections. Uh, I won't even mention the Christian Bale, Exodus, God, well, I will. Um, uh, it was unlike, it's like one of these things is not like the other, okay? So instead of showing him uh, bowing prostrate before the burning bush, um, it shows him right before he's, uh, 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 as he's climbing the mountain, he's in a rock slide, a rock hits him on the head, he wakes up, and he's uh, in, in a big mud bath, laying, and all you see is, is his face like this. And instead of the voice coming from the burning bush, the burning bush is back there, kind of like a decorative Hanukkah menorah. Um, and a little boy present, uh, is playing God. Uh, and uh, not that the little boy is playing God. He's, he's portraying uh, God. And uh, uh, Moses uh, says to him, uh, uh, can you turn up the heat of the mud? No, he uh, says, uh, who are you? And the kid says, you know, uh, <laughs> who are you? Uh, And so, none of the actual objections were presented. Hollywood, even at its best, leaves the story that the Bible presents. And again, remember, when we're dealing with Moses, it's an autobiographical presentation. It leaves so many details out. I don't know if they think that, well, we have to cut it for time, or we're concerned that all those objections might really undercut uh, our portrayal of Moses as a hero. I love these objections because they present Moses with honesty, with clarity, that he is truly a human being. He's not a two-dimensional cardboard cutout. He's not Hercules. He's not um, Odysseus. Uh, He's not uh, even uh, Leonidas uh, of Sparta. He is just a man. Charged, commissioned with an extraordinary task. And I identify with that. Because I am just a guy. And that's what Just a guy, just gals. Guys and gals here. Or guys and dolls, if you like your musicals. All just regular people. Commissioned to perform extraordinary tasks. Well, last week we saw Moses up at Mount Sinai. And again, this is the traditional uh, location of Sinai. This is what it looked like. Uh, and uh, he's told by God, go back to Egypt. Uh, I've seen the suffering of my people. I've seen, I've heard, I care, I feel. Uh, I'm going to get personally involved in this rescue mission. Um, and I'm sending you as the catalyst. You are the tip of the spear. You are to go back to Egypt and uh, liberate your people. And you'll remember Moses gives the first of four objections to this divine commission. And each one of these objections, and the first four of these objections, we'll, we did two last week, we'll do two more. This, the, the, the first two of those objections, or actually the first four of the objections, they elicit divine reassurance. So God hears, and God reassures. Remember, objection number one for Moses was, Who am I? to fulfill this commission. And God's response, you remember, is, it does not matter who you are. What matters is who I am, and that I will be with you. Moses' second objection. By what name shall you be called? What shall I tell my people? And God's response, call me, remember this is the explanation of I am that I am, uh, not to be confused with Popeye, uh, but I am, uh, I was who I was, I will be who I will be. It's a play on the word to be. The, The covenant name of God is a derivation of the Hebrew word to be. And so therefore it's timeless. And he not only identifies himself as the I am, the timeless one, the creator of time, the one who is outside of time, but he talks about what he cares about and what he's concerned about and the things that he does. And that which he does is redeem his people, in this instance, from slavery. So, call me, response number two, call me by a name that reflects both my divine essence and my redemptive substance. That I am a big God who gets involved in big redemptive operation. And that brings us to the closing verses of what we covered last week. Just to bring us up to speed. They will pay heed to what you say. Uh, and you, with the elders of Israel, will come to the king of Egypt. So, the El- by the way, God commissions Moses to come to Pharaoh alongside the elders of Israel. This is the last we hear of the elders of Israel. Right? So, the elders—it's of- not- Moses doesn't fail. The elders of Israel don't step up and support Moses. Moses goes basically on his own, he and Aaron. Uh, but by the way, the elders of Israel were actually supposed to come forward. Elders, by the way, in Hebrew uh, means bearded one. Uh, so, God, get with it. Um, uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, Satan the Lord, covenant name, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. So now, please, let us go. Look at this minimal request. It doesn't say, 10 times let let my people go. That's shorthand. The first thing he's going to, what he's commissioned to request, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to our God. Just three days vacation from their task. Three days journey there, three days back, three days vacation. In order to worship the Lord outside of the borders of Egypt, but even that minimal request, just a week off, even that minimal request, Pharaoh will not who uh, will not uh, allow, but I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion, so therefore God is going to demonstrate his authority, so I will stretch out my hand. Hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you shall not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and daughters thus you will plunder the Egyptians. They will not leave Egypt empty-handed. The Egyptians are going to be, shall we say, favorably disposed toward them on their way out. And they will not allow them to leave empty-handed. And they will receive, the Hebrews will receive from their taskmasters the recompense due from their labors. Back pay. This again, to understand where this is coming from, It fulfills God's promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 15, part of the Abrahamic covenant, that Israel is going to leave Egypt possessing great wealth. Now, despite the divine assurance of this wondrous outcome, Moses, believe it or not, again, chutzpah, nerve, Moses raises a third objection to his role in God's rescue operation. Then Moses said, What if they will not believe me, or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. He's still uncertain, you see, that he would be believed, or that he would inspire the confidence of the Hebrews, and that he would be granted leadership authority over them, perhaps rattling through his mind. For the past four decades was that lingering echo of the Hebrew slaves' taunt. Who made you a prince and a judge over us. Rejection by your own family can leave lasting scars. Moses is indeed scarred by his path. So, what's the objection number three? What if they don't believe me? So, to answer the objection, here's what's going to happen God's going to enable Moses to perform three authenticating supernatural signs to establish his credentials as the Lord's spokesman. Remember that when we're talking about how God works and God's instruments, the miracles, the wonders that God's instruments perform, they are never designed to convince the unbelieving to believe. That's not the purpose. Because if you do one miracle... That may work for a little while to be impressive, but the miracle itself cannot be the demonstration of the message. Look at how powerful God is. Because sooner or later, you're going to be saying, what has God done for me lately? And you're going to be looking for the next miracle. Miracles are not the message. The miracles are given to authenticate the message. The message is the message. The miracles serve as a supporting player to validate the authenticity of God's spokesman. You know, I know that that's true. Because no generation of the Jewish people saw the power of God on display more magnificently than the Exodus generation. But after ten plagues and a sea-parting excursion, it still never was enough for them to truly trust God. Right after the sea parts, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Did you bring us all the way out here to die in the wilderness? Right? Because the miracles, if you're looking for miracles to be your message, to say, well, if only I saw a miracle, then I would believe the Bible is very clear. It ain't necessarily so. You must believe the message. You want a little authentication? You want a little validation? Okay that's a miracle, okay? That what you believed is right. A lot of people today say, you know, well, Jesus didn't show up to me. Why, didn't he, why wasn't he resurrected uh, in front of all of Israel? In fact, why, why wasn't it televised? There's no television. Uh, simple answer, right? Stupid question. Um, but the, 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 the point is, why doesn't Jesus make himself personally known to every individual, if Jesus made himself personally known to every individual, well then, where's faith? But secondly, Jesus didn't, and he left the message in the hands of the apostles. And that the message in our hands, and people must believe, and every now and then, God validates the message. Yes, I never saw Jesus resurrected. I wasn't there. But to ask for, to see Jesus resurrected, Is commensurate to asking, how come God doesn't part the Red Sea for every generation of Jews? If we're really believing him, why did he do the miracle for everybody? Every every generation gets a gets a free sea crossing as part of the program. Doesn't work that way. But getting back to this objection, what if they don't believe me? Here's what God says: The Lord said to him, "What's that in your hand?" And he said, "A staff." And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. (laughs) I thought it was a staff, but it's a serpent. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand. Let's see how your faith is, right? Stretch out, go grab that snake. Grasp it by its tail, right? And everybody knows when you're grasping a snake, because, you know, I'm an expert on grasping snakes. Or at least I'm an expert in looking up the information on the internet on how to grasp snake. But everybody who's looked it up on the internet on how to grasp snake knows that you don't grasp a snake by its tail because it could just lean over and bite you. but So it's, it's fate. Grasp so it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord... The God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. So you need authentication. Again, the miracle of the staff and the staff—that's not the message. That's not what you believe in. You believe in message, but you need a little authentication. Here's the miracle. But I got more. But wait, there's more. The Lord furthermore said to him, "Now put your hand into your bosom." So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Ugh. Right. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again. He took it out of his bosom. Behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, see, that's why you need more than one miracle. Because miracles have a definite shelf life. The power of a miracle has a definite shelf life when you're trying to convince someone of something. If they don't believe you, If they don't heed the witness of the first sign, they will believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs, or heed what you say, i got a third thing for you to do. You shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. These are pretty great credentials. Now notice, however, that unlike the first two signs... This third one, not reversible, right? You are spoiling drinking water. So that's why like, you keep that for the third, right? That, and it will serve actually as a really great warm-up for the first plague, the uh, turning the Nile into, into blood. So, objection number three again. What did he say? What was his objection? What if they don't believe me? What was God's response? Number three... That's my responsibility to worry about, not yours. If they don't believe me, it's not your responsibility. God says it's my responsibility that they be believe. Don't you worry about it. You just present the message and let me worry about their reaction, their response. But here comes a fourth objection. <laughs> just see, see again, miracles, even for more, my hand, my staff, you know, whatever. I just saw two really Cool things, but it's not enough to convince me. Verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently, nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. For I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. To which I, as a reader, say, slow of speech, slow of tongue. You just Gave four objections. You don't seem to have any impediment whatsoever in telling God, the creator of the universe, the God of your fathers, saying no to Him. Slow of speech and slow of tongue. Who are you fooling? Four objections, chock full of, of nerve, of chutzpah, to the God of the universe. And you say, I'm not a good speaker. And this objection evokes rapid reproof. You know, Stephen tells us when he writes of Moses, when he speaks of Moses in Acts 7, it doesn't seem like speech impediment was the flaw that Moses has in mind, I think. I mean, unlike, you know, what Ben Kingsley does with the, you know, all of a sudden Moses says Meltilus. You know, I, I don't know that that's really what was going on here. I think it was fear of intimidation. Remember, Moses, if they had tapes, you know, Moses has the ancient Israelite equivalent or Egyptian equivalent of old tapes rolling around in his mind, rejection and fear and uh, lack of acceptance. He's intimidated about going before the Egyptian court, going before his own people. But the objection evokes rapid reproof, because the idea is, if you can comfortably speak back to the God of the universe, it stands to reason that you should do at least okay with Pharaoh, right? That's, uh, and so God says to him, uh, uh, objection, I'm inadequate to the task. So that's objection number four. Moses says, I am inadequate to the task. Big task, little me. Okay, I am inadequate to the task. So God says this. The Lord says to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord, the covenant name of God? Now then go, and I, even I... Will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. The Lord reminds Moses that he had, was the one, God was the one who created Moses' mouth and that Moses has precisely the mouth, precisely the tongue that the Lord had designed for him. And furthermore, God promises here that he would overcome any of Moses' physical limitations, either perceived or real. How is he going to do that? By personally revealing to Moses precise words that he was to enunciate before both his people, the Hebrews, and the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. So, again, objection number four. I am inadequate to the task. Response by God, number four. Perhaps so. However, I will make adequate. Maybe you are inadequate. It's immaterial. Because I will make adequate. And now we get to an objection too far. An objection too far. But he said, Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Every one of Moses, all four, had been patiently addressed and answered by God. But Moses was still not buying What the Lord was selling ultimately comes down to the fact that Moses simply does not care for the position that God is offering him. And he turns God down flat. He says, choose a replacement. Send someone else. Someone else. Anyone else. Whomever you will. So objection number five. This is the objection too far. Use someone else well. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he speaks fluently. And moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him, and put the words in his mouth. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak to you for the people, and he shall be as a mouth for you, and you are to be as God to him. So, this fifth objection elicits a response of God in anger. Runs out of patience. And he's got a lot of patience. Pretty deep well. But Moses exhausts all that. And God now is going to bring a third party into the equation, Moses' brother Aaron. And God begrudgingly indulges Moses' reluctance to expound the divine message. Moses is commissioned to serve as God's mouthpiece, but Aaron, I and mean, Aaron's not even here yet, Aaron is going to uh, receive a commission to be Moses' mouth. So you have, in a sense, a game of telephone. Right? You have a three-way system arranged where God's going to speak to Moses. Moses is going to pass the divine message to Aaron. Aaron passes it now to publicly broadcast. message. You shall take in your hand this staff. With which you shall prove the sign. Whatever personal insecurities Moses continues to exhibit, he and Aaron, and they're going to share this staff, they possess a visible totem of their ability to wield God's power. This makes Moses into Linus. Here's how you know I'm with you, you will do my one through this. Don't leave it in the coat room anymore. Take it with you. So, objection. Number five: Use someone else instead. What's the response to objection number five? Knock it off. I want you. And if I had to make accommodations, I will. but you're the point, man. You're not getting out of this one. I will allow you to share responsibility with your older brother, but you're still the tip of the spear. So we ask, So what? What does this have to do? With me. What it has to do with you, we started talking about this last week. We are just like Moses. We have a whole slew of objections to God's call, and we are very comfortable and practiced at expressing. I, uh, I'm not an amateur at this. I look at four or five objections. I say, to say thanks, but no thanks to what God is commissioning us to? Very familiar. So many of them. Of course, uh, the assumption here is that you're aware of what God's called you to or is calling. You may object, well, I, I haven't had the privilege of my own personal burning bush experience. It's okay, I assume most of us haven't, right? But we must not assume that the absence of a physical manifestation of God in our lives is indicative of a lack of personal divine invitation. Some of what we're called to do is simply on display. Where? Within the page of the screen and it doesn't require a personal invitation because there's a corporate invitation for every believer now let's uh, finish up our message today by reviewing those four objections and I and the responses and I want, to, I want you to think about as we go through them I want you to think if there is uh, a fragrance of familiarity of about any one of these objections I want you to think about this objection number one who am I to fulfill this commission? The response doesn't matter who you are. What matters is who I am and that I'll be with, right? So many of us feel absolutely too small for any task to serve God. He's a holy God. And, well, Lord, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but I'm not a very holy person. My, my holiness is filled with holes, right? Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not only not Charlton Heston. I mean, I, I'm not... I'm not as 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 faithful a, a a believer as as brother Gumball down the block. If you knew who I was, Lord, if you really knew who I was, you would never choose me. You must not be paying a lot of attention to your preachers down here because I have a somewhat unsavory past. And forget the past; I struggle in my present. And if I actually say yes to what you're commissioning to, I might embarrass you and again. God's response it doesn't matter who you are, no matter what you've been, what you've done, it doesn't matter how, how who you are, what matters is who I am, and that I've called you, and that you're my child, and because I love you, I will be think I'm sending you to do something by yourself. God never sends us something by ourselves. He's always with, you, always with you. the whole point as believers in Yeshua of having received the Holy Spirit. It means that we are never without resource and we are never without company. So, who do you think you are? Who, do you know who I am? Doesn't matter. What matters is who God is. And he'll be with. Talked last week, of course, about the, the messianic uh, uh, adjustment, uh, corollary to this one, which is not uh, who am I, but you know who I am. You want me to do a job? That's too small a job. For a man like me, for a guy like me, with my education, with my uh, abilities, with my gifting, with my talents, with my uh, connections, I need a bigger job than what you're asking. That's the message. You see the the church, it says, well, you not know, just a very Jewish one. But is anybody here, think about it, is anybody wrestled with either the initial objection or the corollary? Um, that job is too small for me. Um, I, I, I could never be caught dead doing something so menial as... Uh, uh, cleaning our bathrooms, or custodial work, or um, locking up the doors, or uh, moving heavy equipment, setting up the stage—let's say, or moving tables, or greeting people, standing out in the standing out in the hot sun—I'm um, far too important to that. Greet strangers who are coming to church for the first time. Well, that's objection number one. Objection number two. By what name shall you be called? And again, remember what we talked about last week. When we speak of God, we must speak of him not only as who he is, which is the God of all, the God of all time, the creator. I mean, we have an inexhaustible uh, number of descriptive phrases, um, none of which will by themselves capture the greatness of our God um, as eloquently as the God who is outside of time. I was, I uh, will be, I am. The name that reflects my divine essence, who I am, and what I'm about, what God's about, redemption. God is in the business of mounting rescue operations. He did so did two major rescue operations in the history of the world. Rescue operation number one, the Red Sea, the Exodus, past the fulfillment, the part two, and the greater, the the greater redemptive act, sending His Son to die on behalf of all those who are enslaved to their propensity for sin, so that they can be reconciled to God. So when we talk about God, who He is, and what He does, that's the response. Objection number three. What if they don't believe me? How many of us have heard or uttered this objection ourselves when we think about our responsibility, our talk about corporate commissioning to Evangelize, to share the good news, to share what we call the gospel of Yeshua, HaMashiach, Jesus, the Messiah. I don't know enough Bible to be able to speak intelligently. Um, I don't know enough theology to be able to speak, uh, to answer all the questions that someone may have. Um, uh, I'm shy. I, uh, I'm embarrassed to share my faith. Uh, people will think uh, less of me, uh, and and nobody's going to believe me anyway. So why should I even get involved in evangelism? Um, I can't put two evangelistic sentences together. What if they don't believe? Me? Jewish work, man, I hear that objection all the time. Right? It is the Jew. What if the Jewish people do not find me Jewish evangelist? That's, that's tough evangelism. It is no lie. What if they don't find me sufficiently credible? You know, as a people, the Jew, my people were a very challenging people. What if the Jewish people don't believe me? Or forget about Jewish people, just Muslim people, or uh, Asian people, or Texans, or go out on a limb, Californians. Uh, wh- what if they don't believe New Yorkers? What if they? <laughs> what if they don't believe me? And the. Answer is always going to be that's God's response to worry about, not yours. What if they don't believe me? God says, So what if they don't? Just what party do you believe to be the instrumental force in evangelism, anyway? Is it your cleverness? Is it your persuasive abilities that you can? Can convince people right to believe like you're, like you're charming a snake that's what that was like. The instrumental force in evangelism is God. so the answer to this objection for us, how about worrying about boldly sharing your faith? Leave all the heavy lifting to God and that principle, again, it applies when we talking about Jewish evangelism and Gentile evangelism, right? But again, how about if we look at this objection and we turn it around? not what if they don't, what if they don't believe me? What if they do believe? I don't happen to like those people, right? I, 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 What if this big mouth enemy of everything that I stand for? What if this person actually comes to faith? Then I have to love that person. I have to. I have to treat that person as a brother, as a sister. What if they? It's the old Jonah conundrum, right? Will be, will be mishbucha then, right? All right. Response number four, or objection number four. I am inadequate to the task, God says. You know, big surprise to me, I made you. I know what your adequacies and inadequacies are, but not to worry. I will make you adequate. So are you feeling inadequate about supporting ministry with your finances? Say, I look at my checkbook. uh, In fact, things are so tough, I don't even use my checkbook anymore, right? These are tough times. My checkbook, my bank account is not adequate to the task of supporting ministries, congregations, the work of God, missionaries. My 401k dwindled to a 201k a decade ago. I don't know if it's caught up. Maybe it's right now a 301. The Trump economy, maybe. Who knows? But don't you know that even when this economy, my job is insecure, my debts are mounting, my mortgage is still underwater? Or how about family? I am inadequate to the task of loving my spouse, of respecting my spouse, of preferring my spouse above myself. Many of us can identify with that field. Many of us have been hurt, have been deeply wounded by our spouses. Don't you realize how devastatingly painful, how extraordinarily strenuous it is to even remain married? Can't, Can't we all just... Oh, Lord, can't you just be content that I've decided against divorce? Or don't you know how my family has hurt me? And even now, when I see them, they continue to wound me? And I have to love them? Back don't you know who my father is? Don't you know who my mother is? And I'm inadequate to the task. God, what about at work? My boss is the biggest chucklehead that you can imagine. How am I to respect him? How am I, how am I to exhibit him? How am I to work at my position as if I'm working for you, Lord? What about my kids? I am inadequate to raising children, but I have to raise godly children. But if I discipline my child, if I really crack down on them, maybe maybe they won't love me so much. I like being a quasi-permissive parent. It avoids conflict in my home. I, I, I simply don't have the courage to risk my child's resentment or to hear my children... Ever say I hate you, Dad, Mom? And here we are at Beth uh, Shalom. Not involvement here. You know what? What I'm adequate to? I'm adequate. Sit and soak. That makes me And by the way, while I'm sitting and soaking, I'm engaged. I'm listening. That's isn't that enough, All right? By the way, while I'm doing that, I hope we have a really good kids' program um, for my kids. Good, but. Don't ask me to get involved. Don't even ask me to serve as an aide because I'm inadequate to the path. Well, fifth and final objection. Use someone else instead, to which God says, stop, just, just stop. Use someone else instead. That was the objection that pushes God over the edge of divine reassurance to harsh reality. Not it off, Because I want God... God wants, but there's not one of us that God hasn't called. Yeah, oh, you haven't had a burning bush experience. Okay, yeah, uh, let me call you a ambulance right? Here's, here's little, the world's smallest violin, right? Um, I haven't had a burning bush. I don't anticipate I would. But I know that he wants and that he's called. This happens to be pretty public. Some of us, most of us, not called to such public, but we are called the holy work. On the cutting edge of the Messianic movement, Solace Radio will rock your faith and bring the Bible alive. If you go out and speak the word of God to another person, if you go out and encourage them to turn to the Lord, you are doing the work of an angel. We call it, in that action, evangelizing. You're evangelizing. You're, you're working in the... In the role as an angel of God. So, just because it says an angel did it, it doesn't necessarily mean, oh, that's, you know, one of the ones with the floppy wings, you know, and, uh, and uh, so forth. It, it may be someone else. And in this particular case, as we get down to those chapters, I'll take you back here to show to you, prove to you. Are you ready for this? This angel is an end time believer.
1: Talked about your back to the future scenarios here. Solace Radio.